I can't never stop working hard. Each day I feel I have to improve. Hard work, determination. I've got to keep pushing myself. Hello and welcome to hi the only podcast that can break technology faster than a black belt can break a board. <laughs> Episode 45, recorded September 1st, 2013, starts now. Somehow I understand that uh, little pithy quote there, Dave. Oh yeah, you know, I have been breaking technology at a frenzied pace this weekend and it's all in the service of trying to improve the show and it all boils down to one simple factor. Dave Jones is a tech breaker. Ah, uh, yeah, and I've got a computer that's older than dirt, apparently, I and got you. there are no workarounds for so many things. Did um, you say reach around again? No, oh, I didn't. Darn. No, All right. keep listening. Maybe I'll say it. I hope so. Uh, anyway, uh, how you doing, Craig? Pretty good. Panic in a pew is a palindrome. Yeah. <laughs> Look, folks, we got a great show coming up for you today. I'm really excited about this one. Um, we have an interview. With Mr. Bay Logan, who is my Hong Kong cinema guru. Guru. <laughs> Not Guru Jong. <laughs> just Guru. And uh, he, he's a fascinating dude that's up to a lot of stuff out there. So I think you guys will enjoy this. But we are definitely going to talk some movies tonight. Yeah. We've also got news. Uh, we've got a mailbag segment because it's been piling up over there. And uh, a little short media mop-up for you, too. So we're, we're packed to the gills. So Man. I don't want to... Entertainment, entertainment and martial arts. Wow. Yeah. Just wow. That's all I can say. Wow. Upside down is mom. Look, you know, we can tap back on some of this stuff. I don't want to make us too front end heavy here because we're creeping up on time for our interview and we're having to do one of those uh, Atlanta versus Hong Kong time shift things. (laughs) That's a tricky one, man. It is. So I'm sure Bay is sipping his morning coffee right now, scratching his head going, why did I agree to do this? But um, we're going to get onto that really shortly. But a couple of things we should just sort of housekeep here at the beginning. Yeah, let's keep house, brother. Mm-hmm. Let's do that. Um, Front heavy like a broadsword. So the first thing I want to mention is uh, I had a wonderful conversation with Ernesto over at the Results Will Vary podcast. Sweet. Yeah, so that is up on their feed right now. We put a link to it in our Facebook page. Um, so oh, they interviewed you, or how did yeah, that go no, down? it was it was an interview. We talked a lot about this podcast uh, and uh, all sorts of other stuff, and we talked a lot uh, towards the end of it about podcasting in general. So that was fun, especially if some of you listeners are out there trying trying to slog away in the same field we are. Hi. Yeah, Jeff, for instance. Exactly. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> and what was his uh, imitation of you? Sweet. Nice. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> nice. That is a yep. pretty good Craig imitation. Um, so, yeah, definitely check that out. He was a really cool guy. We had a fun conversation, and uh, y'all might enjoy that. Uh, nice. The other thing we should probably bring out here right up at the front of the show is uh, we put up a sponsor page we did? on our website oh yes yeah you're the one that did it so that's right yeah and, check it out folks yeah uh, i spent a lot of time on that you know if uh you guys know some people or you happen to be somebody in your own right or runs your own business uh products and services all that good stuff you want to expand your market to our niche community listeners 
check it out. Uh, it says uh, sponsors, you know, and you've got all the facts and details about our market and uh, all the nitty gritty stuff of our growth and in the industry. Yeah, and uh, I, I want to make it clear we're you know we're not selling out over here or anything else. You're going to get the same content you've always got. But frankly, I've been hemorrhaging money on this podcast. So you know, if anybody's willing to help out that way. We're all for it, and we yes, were actually indeed. approached uh, a little while ago by someone wanting to advertise on the podcast, so we sort of had to get our heads together on this. So it's there if anyone wants to check it out, and there is a level on there just for, you know, if you're a listener and, for instance, you know, your Uncle Freddie or your daughter Sally just got their black belt or something like that happened in their lives, and you just want to immortalize it on the High Up podcast, We've got a really cheap way to do that for you. Exactly. Um, also, if you've got a seminar coming up and you want uh, our listeners to be notified about it, there's a way to uh, put that up on the website as well. So Yeah, seminars, events, all kinds of stuff. So, you know, uh, on the listener level, it's all very accessible. And, uh, you know, and if you're a business out there that uh, thinks martial artists might like to hear about your product, well, then... You you now know where to find us. That's right. Panicking up you is a palindrome. Yeah. Well, goodness, I've got a lot of other stuff, but uh, it's it's the witching hour for our interview, Craig. So why don't we uh, get the mop and the shop back and run real quick out to the champagne lounge and try to make it habitable after all the flooding we had today. That's right. It's been a rainy and uh, rainy yeah. day in Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> you are just world famous for misappropriating song lyrics. Indeed. Moon River, how's about a kiss? Yep, that ain't how it goes, Craig. All right, we'll be right back with our interview. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning to everyone that has just tuned in to this program. This is Linsen Sin from Singapore. I shall now read to you a poem in Mandarin. in the virtual studio with us. He's a writer, an actor, a producer, a commentator, a uh, representative of the Wong Fei Hung Museum in Foshan, and uh, in my book, the world's foremost authority on Hong Kong action films. He's also a wow. martial artist. <laughs> there's, there's no beginning to my talent. I love it. Thank you. Right, right. <laughs> Nor in. What, are what you a way drinking? to start a Monday. That's good. <laughs> are you drinking coffee in a beer stein? Is that what I'm saying? Yeah. Excellent. Uh, the way to go, you see. It and, is. And, you see, it's English. It's got like uh, London. Uh, it's a London sign. Right. <laughs> I need it. Honestly, Monday mornings, you know, I need I need a shot of the good stuff to get me started. So that's yeah. where we're at. Sunday evenings, uh, we need a shot of the good stuff too. So there, oh, there you go. go. Yes, that's indeed. <laughs> yeah. Hey, we're having a little Skype breakup, so I'm going to go ahead and turn the camera off. It might help with, uh, with our okay. audio quality over here. All right, fine. All right. Um, so, uh, look, before we get started here, if, if you don't mind, and I don't usually do this, let me, let me regale you with a very short story of how I came to know about you, which might sort of help inform the conversation. 
Go ahead. Uh, um, when I first started training Chinese martial arts back in about 1991 or two, I was uh, doing hungar in the bedroom. Oh. Another hungar. I like it. Yeah, started out with that, and uh, I was I was training with Josephus Calvin between the bed and the wall in his apartment building, holding stances. I just started. Ooh. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, him and his boys would sit around on the edge of the bed and watch a TV that they had there, and they were picking up Hong Kong movies from you know the from Chinatown down there, right. and. Uh, right. You know, so they had Once Upon a Time in China, which had just uh, come out there and, and all mm. this stuff. And it, it certainly made it easier to hold stances while I was watching that stuff go on. I just funny, I do exactly the same thing. I mean, so don't feel, don't feel too weird. Or maybe it's just you and I both weird. Well, yeah, I, I hope that's the case because normal is boring. Yeah. But uh, this progressed on. I wound up in Athens, Georgia, you know, and I kept up with this. I, I trained at Ty M Studio for a while, and he was starting to dabble in that stuff. And uh, I wound up in Athens, Georgia, and uh, I went into this weird, sleazy little video store. And uh, I talked to the owner for a minute, and he found out that I knew something about Hong Kong films. So he threw a Tai Shin catalog down in front of me uh-huh. and said, uh, Oh, I've heard about that, but I don't know what to buy. Pick out a dozen films and we'll buy them and if they rent then great so i went through there and did based on my limited knowledge and they rented almost as well as the porn so he was really excited about it (laughs) you go and shortly thereafter one of the other employees there bought me your book uh hong kong Uh, action cinema and that was my bible for supplying this place with hong kong action movies wow that's cool (laughs) so um Let's let's go ahead and start out before we get into all the movies and stuff. Uh, this is a martial arts podcast, and we like to get people's personal stories about this. So, tell us about what you train, uh, your your hungar, and how you got into that. Yeah, give us and, the karate. What's right. going on with that? Sure, totally. Well, um, just to start at the beginning and work back. Right now, I have a kung fu school here in Hong Kong in an area called Chung Sawan, which I kind of operate for my teacher Mac Chi Gong, and uh, we teach traditional Hong Kun hungar. Um, which, as you well know, is a very traditional southern style, deep stances, uh, animal techniques, conditioning. Uh, are you still hearing me? Yeah, yep. hearing you fine. But you guys are quiet. So, um, <laughs> and, um, you know, that, and we have the full weapons and, and everything. And it's a real uh, privilege at this stage of my life and career to have my own place in which to train. So uh, I've kind of fine-tuned it down now. I'm principally doing Hong Kong training and, and some Chen Tai Chi as well, which kind of complements the, uh, the hard southern style. Awesome. But my background to it was, I think like a lot of people of my generation, um, it was like uh, watching the David Carradine Kung Fu TV series. It was watching Bruce Lee movies. Yeah. So my recollection is I actually, the, because in England we had very strict rules about what age you could get in and see a movie. I didn't see the Bruce Lee stuff till quite late. So the real thing that kick-started my interest was... Um, was Kung Fu, the TV series. Wow. And I used to think, you know, like, you look at Bruce Lee and you go, you know, whatever happens, I'm never going to look like that if for no other reason than I'm never going to be Chinese. Exactly. <laughs> you look at, uh, at, at Kung Fu, and you know, as Margaret Cho said, that shouldn't be called Kung Fu. It should have been called Who's That White Guy? Nice. <laughs> and, I love Cho, man. I look a, bit like, but look a bit like that. I could look like David Carradine. And the other thing was, you know, Bruce Lee and his movies, was always discovered on at the beginning of the movie as a martial arts superhero. So you're never quite sure how he got there. Whereas with Kung Fu, you have this guy starts off, goes in the temple, walks the rice paper, does all of the training, and you can see a progression. Right. Um, it's kind of like looking forward to 
Laogar Lang's 36 Chambers of Shaolin, the idea of you take somebody from zero to hero through the different chambers of the temple. So it was immediately, wow, Shaolin, Chinese Kung Fu. The funny thing about that whole era was it was like the Kung Fu boom, and everybody was watching Kung Fu and Bruce Lee doing Kung Fu, and then they went off and did karate and, and taekwondo ninjas and, and ninjas yeah all that stuff yeah but i was like no i want to do kung fu and in in the town i lived in in england is a little place called well little i mean it's uh, not very famous it's a big big city now peterborough mm. there was a um school the behind, kung fu school kung fu classes behind in a church hall uh, in the city of, in the center of the city and they were teaching a style called Lao Ga, uh, yeah. which i now know of as being it's kind of a composite style where they the guy who, who, who kind of uh, created it put together lots of different movement, forms from different styles and made stuff up and it put it all together. Well, I mean, it became, it's been very popular and successful. I don't know intrinsically there's anything wrong with, you know, kind of putting different forms of southern martial art together into a new system. No, um, well, Tai Yim's thing, Hung Foot, was a, was a pretty new system. Well, yeah. But, I mean, I, I guess that the question is, I mean, they, they were making claims, uh, as far as I remember, that this was a traditional system. And now, of course, living in Hong Kong and having access to information about all the southern styles, I know there is no Lao Ga other than in our Hong Ga. I don't know if you train this form, but we have, like, a Lao Ga Kun and Lao Ga Fun, which are, like, from some Lao system that's kind of been lost to antiquity. But Lao Ga as a separate style doesn't exist anymore. And I think it's probably, it was just a convenient name and they put all those different forms of you can copyright the forms I guess if you're if you make it up yourself as opposed to doing Wing Chun or Hong Kun or what have you right. so I started training in that I'm, I'm very grateful to the uh, people I was training with at that time because it was a good base and then I would um, became very involved with editing and writing martial art magazines and uh, moving towards getting involved with film and always along the way I would be training in different arts and coming back to Honga. Really, it was a question of when I moved geographically, there may not be immediately a good teacher in Chinese martial arts, so I'd be doing Taekwondo or I would do, you know, something, Thai boxing or something else, and then come back around to Honga when another teacher became available. And then the big transition, I think, is when I moved to Hong Kong and trained initially when I was living on the Kowloon side with uh, a teacher called Zheng Yikang. And then after I moved to the island, to uh, Max Zifu, Max Gong, and I've been training with him since, and that's been about five years now with him. But yeah, it was just kind of like, I guess it's like music, you know, that you, you can like all styles of music, but there might be one particular kind or genre that somehow speaks to you. So everything about Hunga, Hongkyu, and the traditions, the fact that they had that wonderful film connection, the, uh, the techniques themselves, and the weaponry, and the community of, of Hunga really appealed to me. And then, um, Actually, the studio that we shoot at in China is right next to Fat San, which is where oh, nice. the home base of Wing Chun, the home base of Hong Kong and Choi Lei Fat. So, yeah, I feel part of an extended family of, uh, of Kung Fu. Awesome. Yeah, and, uh, you know, you're, you're spot on with that. We, uh, we all eventually find a home base that, you know, just feels comfortable to us and that we gravitate to. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I tell you, one, one more thing I want to mention about the Kung Fu, which is kind of sure. interesting, because a lot of people uh, today in interviews or just in, in casual conversation, they say to me, well, you know, isn't uh, traditional Kung Fu training is passe, and it's been superseded by 
the MMA training or, uh, you know, kind of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, mixed martial art training. And the idea being that um, we should all stop doing Kung Fu and just put on geese and go and do Jiu-Jitsu. <laughs> yeah. and, well, my, my feeling on that is that probably if you are, if I was, you know, like 18 to 30 years old, fit, strong, healthy young dude who wants to learn how to kick ass, probably, and that's your sole intention, then probably MMA or whatever is, is great. I mean, and somebody at that level, at somebody at that age training to a high level is going to be formidable, just like any highly trained uh, athlete, a boxer, a wrestler, or whatever you're talking about, anybody at that age range. Yeah. The question I have is like, what practice really will benefit you for your whole life? And what's interesting about the Chinese martial art community is you've got these extraordinarily exponents. I mean, even somebody like, you know, Lao Ga Leung Sifu, who just passed away. Yeah, but absolutely. Yeah. Very healthy life, or Quan Ta Hing, who I'd known, who lived to be, you mm. know, in his uh, 90s. Um, you look at the fact that, yeah, when you get beyond 30, 40, 50, when you look at the other martial arts, people have either picked up really serious injuries, not as competent as they want, or they become teachers and they're training the guys who are 18 to 30 years old or younger, you know, 15 to 30 years old. So I was looking for something that would enhance my well-being physically for my lifetime and realized with the other arts that there was a decline, but with the Chinese martial arts, it evolves with you and you get the benefits for as long as you want them. So I absolutely uh, do not buy into this idea. I think if you're that there is another choice for a young competitive athlete, which is MMA, and it's great what they do. It's amazing, you know, what they do. Yeah. I do th the long-term damage to these largely uninsured young athletes <laughs> has yet to be determined because the sport is so young. Right. But as a, a it, obviously, if you're not fighting, if you're just training, I think it, it would be a fantastic you know, discipline, and you definitely become a very effective fighter at different ranges. But um, it doesn't because that's available to people from 15 to 30. Doesn't mean that everybody else should dump their weapons, dump their kung fu outfits, and you know, go and pull muscles doing jujitsu. <laughs> right. Well, and, and actually, on this podcast, we've talked to a lot of people who are competitive, you know, sport martial artists. And uh, like recently, Brent Weedman, we talked to him about this, and he's a Bellator fighter. He's right in the thick of it. And uh, he, he made the point, like, he started out in traditional martial arts. He got into this. He's going to do it full tilt as long as he can do it. But he doesn't yep. want his martial arts career to end when he can no longer compete professionally. So right, he, exactly. he's retaining elements of the traditional and going back to that stuff. And I, I, think, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, the, the thing with, uh, I had a friend of mine here who was doing Tai Sing Pequa, one of the monkey boxing wow. styles. And he made the transition to do jiu-jitsu and became a very, you know, loud advocate for jiu-jitsu. And he was one of the guys saying, you know, why are you still doing all this kung fu stuff? But the thing about this guy, bless his heart, is that <laughs> perennially see him on crutches, you know, injuries, <laughs> limping, whatever. And I'm like going, what are you, are you really, you know, would you, I never saw him that way when he was doing the Tai Seng Pei Kua. I never saw him that way when he was doing the stand-up stuff. But for some reason, he's constantly pulling muscles. And I think one reason for that is, I mean, I'm going to guess he's in his early 40s, um, maybe older. Yeah. And it's, it's always hard to tell with Chinese guys. Um, but that maybe coming into the sport at that age, really, you know, I mean, he's very macho about it and very dedicated to it. But uh, I'm wondering long term, is it helping or hurting? Whereas I'm looking at the people of an equivalent age who stayed in the Tai Sing Pei Kua, 
like Jiao Geng Zifu, and they all seem to be doing fine. So mm. anyway, I, I, I'm a great believer in the fact that you know Chinese martial arts should be a lifetime uh, pursuit, and uh, that's one of the things that separates it from from the other styles. I completely awesome. agree with you. That's one of the things I've always loved about the Chinese arts is the fact it can grow with you and enhance you yeah. as you get older. You know, and it, the trappings and all that good stuff. Hold on one second, Bay. If, if your cell phone is anywhere near your computer, move it a little bit away because we were getting some interference there for a minute. I'm sorry. It was my crackberry. I'm going to move right over here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I've been doing this awesome. long enough, I actually recognize the sound of one yeah, of those. <laughs> yeah, you hear that. Sorry about it. That's but, all right. Um, yeah, so, I mean, um, but for the, uh, you know, one of the first guys that I met, or people that I met when I visited Hong Kong, who, who was in the film, who had been in the movie industry, was, was Quan Tat Hing, who wow. played Wong Fei in like a hundred movies. And the reason I found him was that I'd actually uh, looked in the Hong Kong phone book, and the only guy who was listed was Quan Tat Hing. I mean, that's how much of a nerd I was. I would be like, <laughs> okay, can I find Lung? You know, T-I-L-U-N-G. No, David Chang. There were like hundred David Chang. <laughs> yeah. I go, I go through, is it Sam or Hong? H for Hong. No, nothing. Couldn't find him. Right. And I flick through. Quan Tai Hing. And it's got um, Quan's apothecary in North Point and the address and the phone number. Like, okay, I went over. And he, he, he always looked old. I mean, I can't imagine how he looked when he was young. He's always looked kind of old. Yeah. But he went in there and he was still in extraordinary condition and very bright. And you just look at this guy and you go, boy, you know, you're going to be older for longer than you're younger, sadly. <laughs> so... You should think about. It. You should you should think about it and, and and look at the road ahead through the eyes of somebody like him, as opposed to you know being rest his soul. You know Bruce Lee, who 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 was extraordinary, took everything to you know like Spinal Tap. He took it all up to eleven. Right, but may have and, trained himself to death. Well, that's it. You know something went wrong, obviously, and and he's no longer with us. And and these guys who were doing the arts that he kind of um, dismissed, yep. um, could enjoy. Maybe a longer life. I mean, that might be simplistic, but I do think that you know when I look at the people who are doing the more aggressive, very so the, the, those arts where you're slamming yourself into people or things uh, repeatedly as you get into your 30s and 40s, it's, it's kind of a, this diminishing returns. Yeah, I know. For us, we're both in our 40s, and we only spar now when we've had enough tequila to make it not hurt, and uh, <laughs> we can be out on the back porch, you know. <laughs> Sweet, but. Uh, well, you mentioned Quantac Hing. Let's go ahead and dive into some movies, and we can come back around sure. to other stuff. It, this is free form, so you know whatever comes yeah. up. But by the way, I want to, I want to mention one, one one plug. You know, you mentioned my book, which is great that you saw it. And it's taken forever. I actually, on the ten year anniversary of Hong Kong Action Cinema, went back to the publishers of the original book and said, "Should we do an updated version?" And they declined on the basis that there was insufficient interest in Hong Kong cinema. Well, and I was like, "What?" Yeah. Uh, I don't, maybe it was internal politics but anyway they want to redo the book and then I'm, I'm just putting the finishing touches now to my new book which is called My Life in 36 Chambers cool. and it's at 36 <laughs> favorite films of mine but um, whereas I think Hong Kong Cinema was like an outsider's view it was a guy living primarily in England who just moved to Hong Kong and going hey let's look at Hong Kong Cinema this one there's been a number of books of similar style since then and this one is kind of an insider's look because obviously I've been working in the industry for the last 20 years, whatever it's been, more than, and dealt with a lot of the people and experiences with many of the people who are in the films I'm talking about. So it's um, kind of 
autobiographical view of 36 films and talking about my training and different things. So it's a different different spin. I didn't think I could do the same book twice. Or just like in, originally I, for the 10 year anniversary, I was going to go, well, I'll enhance it and let's talk about the films that you couldn't write about when I did the first book. Right. Uh, that didn't happen. I thought, okay, I'll do. Uh, I didn't quite realize, you know, if I was uh, smarter, I would have said 18 chambers, but I mean, 36 <laughs> is a lot. I now realize, but anyway, it's, it's got fun. That's cool. Yeah. Well, and uh, we'll get around. Let's let's tackle it in sort of phases. Let's start with the beginning and then sort of look at it up through about 96 when your book came out. But I'm very keen to get your thoughts on what happened post-96 in Hong Kong and what's going on these days because there was sort of a shift with some of that gritty just, uh, you know, disrespect for the lives of the stuntmen sort of thing over to Thailand and... You know, other places. I, I, I don't yeah. know. We let, let's work our way up to it, though. Start out. You talked about Quan Tai Hing. Uh, yeah. Tell people what the early stages of of this sort of movie making were. And like you might want to let them know who Quan Tai Hing is. The three of us yeah. actually know, but a lot of our listeners um, are not that uh, schooled. In yeah, <laughs> he's OG Wong Fei. Huh? Yeah. yeah, totally. Well, I mean, I think in the in the nineteen thirties, there was a, a general migration of people, particularly from the south of China to come into Hong Kong um, for economic reasons. Later, of course, and later, of course, for political reasons. Yeah. People into Hong Kong and bringing with them the skills, the culture, the history of southern China. So, um, you know, Hong Kong, in a strange way, from being a colony, became more and more Chinese until today is uh, primarily it's a Chinese city. Um, so what happened was you had martial art masters coming to Hong Kong and bringing their... Uh, their styles and their history. And you also had filmmakers coming from Shanghai and setting up uh, Hong Kong filmmaking for the first time. And there was a, uh, like in America, you had the Westerns, because basically before cinema, you had the Wild West. And it's like, let's talk about our immediate past. Same thing happened here, but in this case, it was like you had Kung Fu schools, matches between Kung Fu fighters. You had these legendary heroes in the south of China. Let's do movies about that. Let's do movies about Fong Sayok, let's do a movie about Shaolin versus uh, Wu Dang. And then there was this amazing character called Wong Fei Hong. And the reason we know about Wong Fei Hong is because the most famous of his students, Lam Sai Wing, uh, Butcher Wing, Juyot Wing, you moved speak Mandarin, from, don't you? <laughs> Cantonese. Okay. Moved from, from, from uh, Fat San to Hong Kong and opened a school and did interviews and talked about this amazing Wong Fei Hong. And so when they decided to do uh, a film series about a le- this legendary figure. They were going to okay, we're the Wong Fei Hong film series. And they try to find somebody to incarnate Wong Fei Hong, and the man they found was a gentleman called Quan Tai Hing, who had a background in white crane kung fu and also had been a, a an opera performer, a black and white film actor, had been something of a Massenet idol. I mean, he, to me, he never really, he never had that leading man look about him, but uh, he he had actually a lot of success as a younger player. And then at the time this, the films were coming around, was already middle-aged, but he had the kung fu background, the physique, the gravitas. So he said, okay, you'll be Wong Fei Hong, and we'll get these other real martial arts Hunga guys to be your students and somebody to play Lam Sai Wing. And the guy playing Lam Sai Wing was Lao Jam, who's the father of Lao Gada, who I mentioned earlier, oh, passed yeah. away, yeah. who was the main Shaw Brothers action director in a later era. So, and, and those black and white films are kind of the proving ground for many of the people who would later revolutionize Kung Fu cinema. For example, uh, Yun Siu Tin, who played uh, the Drunken Master in The Drunken Master, teaching Jackie Chan, and his son, Yin Wapeng, 
Oh. It was the act for Grandmaster, which is in a theatre near you. You know, uh, yeah. He started off on uh, on on the black and white Wong Fei Hung films. So there was about people say a hundred, but actually I think seventy plus of those movies, and they were just incredibly popular. They could not have been more popular. And so you know, you'd go to Hong, come to Hong Kong, and there'd be three theatres with different Wong Fei Hung films playing, starring the same guy. And the only person <laughs> people accepted as as Wong Fei Hung was Quan Tai Hing. He was totally synonymous with that character. So um, he's in the Guinness Book of Records now for the most performances by you know the same a guy in the same role. If you think about yeah. Bela Lugosi synonymous with Dracula after one movie, right. and this guy yeah. did like eighty or so. Some of them have been lost, unfortunately. And um, you know, I have a collection of the surviving ones, and they're very interesting to look at. I mean, um, as the series progresses, they tend to get a bit away from traditional Hongar. If you go on YouTube, you can see a lot of the stuff. In the early films, yeah. they would kind of stop the story and they would have a song, or they would stop the story and somebody would do a form. And later, they became more narrative driven, and the the, the the action became a bit more homogenous. It wasn't quite so Hongar uh, oriented, but it's still extraordinary to see that. Um, to look at those films today and see the beginnings of a lot of the ideas that would be made manifest in the later Kung Fu movies. So that was the black and white era, uh, and that was Quan Tai Hing, and that's kind of how we have this kind of uh, diaspora of the mainland Chinese Kung Fu players and movie makers and opera players, Chinese opera players, coming to Hong Kong and bringing the arts. And all of that combined to create Hong Kong action cinema. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's and of course he he remained active uh very oh, far yeah. in the, yeah, uh he he cameoed in several films. So there there are, you know, modern era films people can still yeah, see his he, work in. The big studio that kind of um took Hong Kong filmmaking to another level was the famous Shaw Brothers studio. And they actually asked Quan Hing to come and make movies there and he declined. But he did have a contract with Golden Harvest to do uh he did three movies for them, The Skyhawk, Magnificent Butcher and Dreadnought. Mm-hmm. And he had like a, a great late life swan song, you know, of doing these uh, these films at Golden Harvest. But they're talking about Shaw Brothers. I mean, what had happened is the, the Shaw Brothers. I mean, it's kind of a misnomer. Like the, the, the Warner Brothers, but the only one that mattered was Harry Warner. Right. And Shaw Brothers, the only one that really matters is Run Run, Run Shaw. Yeah. But they moved from Shanghai to Singapore, Singapore yeah. to uh, Hong Kong, and they were primarily distributors. And then decided to get into production. So they took this land at Clearwater Bay for like a song from the colonial government and built this extraordinary studio, which to this day, I think is their, 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 their um, operation at its height was the most extraordinary filmmaking machine the industry has ever seen um, because they owned the talent because they had everybody on the contract. They owned the actual studio space they shot on. They had the post-production facility and they owned the theaters which was something that American studios couldn't do because of antitrust laws. Right. Uh, couldn't actually produce the films and own the theaters. But in, in Hong Kong, there were no such limitations. In Asia, no such limitations. So Shaw's really had the monopoly on the market. Luckily, they made amazing films. And there was a, a bar. Run Run Shaw was an extraordinary visionary producer, executive producer. And there was a bar, a level of... Uh, competence. And when these movies started coming out belatedly on DVD, I was constantly blown away by obscure movies I'd barely heard of. But so well written, so well shot, so well edited. And 
it was like a bar set of excellence um, that uh, you know has never been bettered in Hong Kong cinema. Yeah, well, so many Americans have only seen these films on Black Belt Theater or whatever on Saturday mornings with overdubbed right. versions yeah. that are cropped and not even panned and scanned. And if you see these movies in the original format, it's like a whole new world. Yeah, because well, the it, dubbing it, takes away the ambiance and the feel of the movie, usually. Actually, yeah, I mean, there's a couple of the movies I actually prefer the dub version because I've watched them so many times over the years but I know I, I take your point and I you know there was a long gap I mean when I written, when I wrote my first book um, hardly any of the hardly any of the Shaw's films were available in any um, in any kind of home entertainment format and they hadn't been sold for television you'd never see a Shaw Brothers movie on television here to my disappointment yeah and so um, the, the, the what the rationale I was told at the time and it may well have been true was that um, because Run Run Shaw was such a great businessman that he had that as an asset of the company. And as soon as you realized it or realized part of it, like if you sold 50 movies and it made X, that meant the whole library was X times 700. So if you didn't release the library, you could list that as an asset of whatever value you put on it. I see. So purposely didn't release the films for the longest time until finally a deal was done with a Malaysian company called Astro who set up a company called Celestial mm. and they went to, to, to uh, you know, and owe them a huge debt of thanks because they were um, then bought in equipment and experts to restore all these aging films um, to pristine condition to put them out on DVD and Blu-ray and put them on television. We have a channel here on TV which is just, you know, playing Shaw Brothers round the clock. So, oh, man, you know, how can we get that here? Yeah. <laughs> Somebody should, you know. I, I, you know what, I mean, the, the, the problem with it, and I found this out to my cost, is that the audience worldwide and American audience is... I would say it's deep rather than wide in that there's guys like you who will consume a vast amount of this, right. but then there's a vast majority of people who don't have any great interest to watch a Kung Fu movie ever. Right. And, um, you know, we, I definitely, at various times in the UK market with my Hong Kong Legends label and in America with Dragon Dynasty, we've tried to push that boundaries of that market and you just, you hit a wall, you know, you get odd films that knock it out of the park. Um, but consistently, it is a very finite audience. I think now with you know VOD and you know all these downloads, that it's become more workable. Yeah. The thing that stopped in the past was that you were like you're kind of treating a speciality item like it is mainstream. So you're taking a DVD, you're doing packaging, promotion, advertising, you're selling it to Walmart or Best Buy or wherever, along with all the Hollywood stuff. Now you don't do that. You just say, okay, click on this. And now that that kind of DNA link between your computer and your TV is diminishing, so people more readily can click on the computer and it plays on their TV, then I think any kind of you know genre filmmaking can find a market. And, and it's certainly the short and the short films really stand up. I mean, if you look at them today, they look fantastic. It's the Celestial Restorations. Well, so that's her yeah, and uh, you know, and again, you know, when I was working in the video store and we were selling, uh, renting these things out, they were all laserdisc copies. You know, <laughs> uh, but uh, why don't you go ahead and, and tell people, uh, our listeners that may not be aware of this stuff, uh, give give your top five for uh, you know these re-release Shaw Brothers films. What should people go looking for if they're not familiar with it? Oh, I mean, well, start off with Thirty Six Chambers of Shaolin, absolutely, Gordon Liu, King Boxer which we released, which should have been called, we should have called it Five Fingers of Death, which is what was the American title was. That was the first really 
brought uh, you know Hong Kong cinema into the uh, which was like the archetypal movie that really launched kung fu cinema chop sockies in America. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Come drink with me, which oh, was yes. by Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, it was Cheng Pei Pei, and it was like a real new style of swordplay. Mm-hmm. So, um, and the other two, like for personal favorites, I would say look at, I'm going to say another Lao Galo movie, probably uh, Martial Club. Yeah, Martial Club's a fun movie. Uh, it's, it looks good, and the, the Kung Fu, the Hungar in it is really amazing. And fifth one. An obscure movie, just to show you that even a movie you've never heard of is really cool. Uh, look at Bells of Death or Killer Constable, because they're both nice. A famous movie, they're just amazing films. And I, I, you know, they would be releasing a bunch every month. And uh, luckily, I had the time, money, and interest to buy them all. So I had like there a huge collection of them. And we, I would watch them, you know, and, and films I've read about, or heard about, and uh, you know, no chance to see. There was no way to see them. I mean, there were people probably out in the world who had vast collections of VHS, but at that time, without the internet, I had no way of really finding people. And a lot of the times, by the way, the guys, I, I always had the position of when I discovered something, um, to share it with the world and to share it with as many of my friends, people as I possibly could, whether it's through a magazine or a label or a film company or whatever I was working at the time. But I found conversely there were people who were like, This is mine. <laughs> they wanted <laughs> They would just sit there, and there were people, I'm sure, back in the day who were probably, probably very disgruntled when all this stuff came out legitimately because they'd been kind of trading off the fact that they had everything on VHS or whatever format they were storing it in. Right. And the whole indie rock thing. Oh, it's, it's not cool if everybody else knows about it. Well, yeah. Exactly. That, that, that was the mindset. So that's what you had to deal with back then. I never really understood that, but it certainly was part of it. And so um, now these all these movies came out, so people could can still appreciate the genius that was Shaw Brothers. Yeah, and that's that's a great list of recommendations because the last two you mentioned I have not even seen, so I'm going to get out there and I check mean, those you out. Just you, you, I, I perennial. I mean, that's just two. I mean, I was constantly um, just looking at these new films. I, I have to say, I, I kind of focus more on the on the action stuff because there's 700 films in their library and there's all the dramas and romances. I, I haven't seen too many of those, but I watched the Oli action stuff. And you just see a swordplay picture or a, a, you know, a martial arts movie that was completely obscure that no, probably, you know, even among the fans, nobody really heard of it. And you watch it and go, wow, this is such a well-made, such a great story. And what you felt was that there was, and there's a lot to be said for the studio system, that there was a set of checks and balances in place whereby... When you were a director or a writer or an actor or whatever, there was a, a structure in place to ensure that you worked to a certain level. Yeah. And um, having made a lot of independent movies now, you know, you're either making films within the studio systems much diminished, and directors have more autonomy and actors have more say. Whether the films are better and whether the value you're getting on screen for what you're spending, if that balance is the same as it was at the Shaw Brothers, I think it's debatable. I, I mean, agree. I think they spend what needed to be spent to make the movie entertaining, and um, they kept a tight rein on everything else. Um, maybe too tight of a rein, because that led to their eventual uh, decline, that the fact that they, would, they couldn't move with the times. Yeah. So that was kind of the, the decline of shorts, but at its peak, they had, their, you know, they had that system down. Awesome. Well, let's let's go ahead and move it along to when they began their decline, and we get into sort of the the eighties and the you know up through the mid nineties. This whole new uh, you know, what happened? What happened was that um, the right hand man of uh, Run Run Shaw, who was the 
mainstay at uh, Shaw Brothers was uh, a guy called Raymond Chow. Now, Raymond was somebody um, very smart, bilingual. He was originally head of marketing and then moved into production. And he anticipated that as Run Run got older and kind of retired, that he, Raymond, would take over. But instead, uh, Run Run's mistress, Mona Fong, was risen, rose up through the ranks to become a producer. And to her credit, became a very effective producer. I mean, her name's on many of the great movies of... She, she was the one that gave an opportunity to Lau Garlo. So you wouldn't have had any of the Lau Garlo movies. She's kind of painted a bit as like this kind of uh, the villain of the piece. But she did good work. I mean, uh, but I, with Raymond, you know, it was like there's a saying in Chinese, never challenge the bed, which means <laughs> you never compete with somebody's wife or mistress or girlfriend. So he could see the lay of the land. So he was like, OK, I'm out of here. So I think if Mona had shared power or if Mona hadn't actually go to that position, Raymond would have stayed at Shaw Brothers. So he left to join, to, to go to Gold, to form his own company, which is called Golden Harvest. Yeah. And the, initially, it was really challenging. They almost went bankrupt because the early films were kind of copies of Shaw Brothers films, understandably, because everybody who'd moved to Golden Harvest pretty much had worked at Shaw Brothers. And um, they were um, squeezed out of the theaters because Shaw owned the theaters. So it's very hard for... Um, Raymond to even get his foot in the door to get people to pay to see the films. So he dispatched uh, Lu Lenhua, who is the wife of Lo Wei, who was a famous director at the time, to LA. Bring back either Cheng Pei Pei, who was a famous, now retired Shaw Brothers swordplay queen, or uh, Bruce Lee. And because uh, Bruce Lee had been a child star who had gone to America, um, reinvented himself as a a movie performer, TV performer, and as a martial arts guru to the stars, come back to Hong Kong in the wake of uh, the Green Hornet to do a, D a TV demonstration. And everybody claims they were the ones, like when the Beatles were Ed Sullivan, everybody says they were the ones, Every, everybody saw this demo. Right. And it was like, we want to get Bruce Lee. And, and Shaw Brothers wanted to get Bruce Lee, but they, their offer was so low because they couldn't think outside the box. They were like, well, we'll offer you the standard actor contract. Raymond had a better deal. And so he flew Bruce Lee in to do Big Boss, and you know, I guess the rest is history. You know, that that suddenly this film came out, and you know, the fact that Shaw's owned the theaters had nothing to do with it. People wanted to see Bruce Lee, and then there was Fist of Fury, Where the Dragon, and the whole Bruce Lee thing. At the same time, Raymond also um, uh, had Wong Yu break his contract. Wong Yu was the guy who'd done the one armed swordsman. He broke his contract with Shaw's, and then to escape the wrath of Shaw's move to Taiwan and establish his own power base in Taiwan. Uh, and then started doing one-armed boxer and other movies for, he, he's kind of, unfortunately, you know, very much in the shadows because Bruce Lee was dominating the, 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 the era of the early 70s in action cinema in Asia. But Mew actually had a strong following and his early films are very successful as well. So uh, Raymond kind of really found his mojo when Bruce came in. And so they had Bruce Lee, and Angel Mao Ying, who was the yeah. female star, Wong Yu, doing his movies. Uh, Cheng Pei Pei did come back and do a couple of films for them. And then that, uh, that kind of gave them the initial momentum to have a financial power base at Golden Harvest. Because Bruce Lee passed away very young. I think had he not, had he not um, died, what Bruce was planning to do, from everything I've heard, is he was going move to move the family back to L.A. So Linda and the children would be raised in L.A. And he would do American movies. And he would maintain a power base in uh, Hong Kong and, you know, have his own life in Hong Kong and back and forward between the two. Um, so that was his 
a game plan, as far as I've been able to ascertain, obviously, nobody really knows for sure. Right. After Bruce Lee passed away, I mean, the thing about Bruce Lee was that everybody, that, that when you saw Bruce Lee, his movies were almost like documentaries in that you tended to believe that what you were seeing on screen, Bruce Lee could do in reality. And not many people had that credibility. So when they tried to launch other action people like Carter Wong, Don Wong Tao, and say, okay, here's this guy, even Jimmy Wong Yu, and they say, here's this guy who's going to fight like Bruce Lee from the beginning of the movie to the end of the movie, he's going to beat everybody up. Audiences didn't accept it. And so there was a while when they were trying to find the new Bruce Lee. And not just the guys who were Bruce Le, Bruce Law. <laughs> Bruce Lie, Bruce. <laughs> All those guys. I mean, these are these incredible martial artists who they were trying to present as being a guy who could fight like Bruce Lee could fight. And people didn't accept it. And so there were two responses to that. I mean, every new wave of cinema is a response to what came before. I mean, right. The same in music, the same in art. There's yeah. nothing in isolation. It's a response to what's before. Sure. So it was like, you have to be anti-Bruce Lee. So the two responses were at Shaw Brothers. Um, Lao Garlang said, okay, we'll do 36 Chamber of Shaolin. Yeah. And what we'll do is we'll take a guy who's this nerdy little school kid and we'll take him through the chambers of training and he emerges as a Kung Fu Superman. So it was completely the antithesis of Bruce Lee. And Bruce Lee was like fist and foot. Traditional Kung Fu is, you know, passe. Uh, I'm the baddest guy on the block for the first reel of the movie. And the 36 Chamber, you demystified it and you said, okay, we'll, we'll show you the progression from this guy and, the, the, and even after he's achieved mastery, the way he fights will be totally different Classically. to Bruce Lee. Yeah, yeah and, and those training sequences are just amazing. And oh, so many movies are part. built around those. Yeah, totally. And, and what's interesting is the, the connection, what uh, Lao Sifu admitted, that he was influenced, oddly, by the, uh, the pilot of um, the, the, the original Kung Fu TV series that came out before Thursday Chamber oh, Child. yeah. Look at the way the temple is depicted, and there's some key scenes. I talk about it in my my book. You know, there's key scenes that show up that were from watching uh, Chong Man Jai, which is a grasshopper boy, which is what they called kung fu in China. Right. Uh, and uh, they watched that, and they were like, "Well, that's cool. We should do that. We should do that." You know, there's this cross pollination of uh, of culture that happens. And the other reaction was that um, Mxian, who'd been a producer at Shaw Brothers, uh, lured Yun Ping away from there to direct. And Yumo Peng directed Snake in Legal Shadow, yeah. which was a kung, the first. I mean, the first real kung fu comedy is probably Lao Garlang's Spiritual Boxer, but the first real smash hit kung fu comedy was Snake in Legal Shadow with Jackie Chan. Jackie had done like nine previous movies for the director producer Lawway that had all flopped. Yeah. And what NG did is he said, "Okay, we'll take a guy who's a complete underdog hero, put him through this rigorous training under the old master." And, you know, we'll be anti-Bruce Lee in that this guy is like, um, you know, kind of a Charlie Chaplin kind of character as opposed to being some kind of martial arts superhero. And that hit as well. So the two strains that succeeded post-Bruce Lee were responses to him, which was classical kung fu with training, with weapons, with animal forms, with all the stuff that Bruce Lee had said is, you know, outdated. And the other side was people who were comedy kung fu practitioners and that, that, you, in that first wave you get Jackie, you get Yun Wah Ping's early films, you get Sam Hung's films, you get Yun Biu, everybody really starting out in, in the kung fu comedy boom of that time. So that was the next wave after Bruce Lee. And uh, 
something that went along with the kung fu comedy there when you started getting Jackie Chan and Sammo Hung and Yun Bu and some of these other yeah. names you mentioned in was uh, the stunt work started getting more and more intense too. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, what what happened? Well, the way Jackie, the way Jackie put that was because you know when you um, when he always kids about it. he said when when Bruce when everybody when. Bruce Lee did kicks and punches. Everybody followed. When Jackie was drunk, everybody, everybody followed. followed. He says when he started jumping off buildings and doing crazy, dangerous stunts, nobody followed because nobody else wanted to risk their life the way that Jackie did. Right. right. So, uh, but there definitely that again was something that um, Jackie moved away from doing pure martial art martial art movies and wanted to put to show what he and his stuntmen could do uh, in terms of like just sheer physically challenging stunts. What's interesting is that the injury and death rate throughout that era is significantly less than it was in Hollywood. Um, and I think one, there's a couple of reasons for that. I think one reason is there's a tendency in America because there's so much high tech involved to believe technology will save your ass, right. which <laughs> may not be the case. And secondly, and this, is, this might sound, uh, I don't know, borders on racist, but I do think there's a reality to it. I think that you know, when you look at the weight, the, the body structure and the, the light weight of the stuntmen here, when they slam into things, they tend to take it better. When you get like a 200-pound burly American stuntman swinging through the, just the laws of physics, I mean, when he hits something, it's going to hurt more. Yeah. So I think that partly with the light-bodied, quick reflexes of the China stunt guys, it means they get hurt less. But there's this big misapprehension of like, oh, so-and-so is going to get killed, so-and-so is going to get, you know, the, actually the injury rate was... Uh, Less than it would be in, in, in Hollywood. Yeah, and interesting. Jack, it makes sense. Jackie, Jackie picked up injuries, but I mean, it was over a long, long, long career. Yeah, and I, I see your point on that, and it, it makes perfect sense. And I, I think another element that might be involved is I don't think most American stuntmen got you know signed themselves over to Peking Opera troops for ten years when they were children either to to really yeah. get that stuff ingrained in them before they started doing it in film. Well, there was definitely a different, you know, style to, I mean, basically the American thing is, you know, wait, 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 boom, there's a stunt. And in Jackie's things, there was this great rhythm to the action scenes. If you look at, you know, Police Story, the Unreal Police Story, just the rhythm of the oh, action, yeah. the way it's almost staged to operatic beats. If you look at Miracles and the music in Miracles and the way that the film, the, the action kind of, uh, Mr. Canton, Lady Rose, a.k.a. Miracles, a.k.a. Canton, Godfather, the way that the action kind of like is you know, kind of rhythmic yeah. uh, beats like music. That definitely came from the opera. I think the opera has had a huge influence on Hong Kong cinema, not because people were doing opera in the movies, but because there was an operatic nature to the storytelling and the performances. Yeah, the elements of, of pacing and just being able to, to have a fight scene that went on for two or three minutes without having to do any cuts, you know, because yeah. they could play out that thing. And I think you moved, away from, you moved away from the violence of it because when it becomes a rhythmic you know, physical performance like that, it feels less violent because violence in the real world is so fast and so bloody. Short and uh, sharp, yeah. Soon, yeah, as soon as you get away from that and you say, okay, we're going to do uh, action rather than violence, that was another thing that made Hong Kong cinema, really of action cinema, obviously very different to, uh, to what you were seeing in the West. Yeah, yeah I, I like the idea too. One of the things that's always appealed to me, you know, being a traditional. Uh, stylist myself, you know, Chinese stylist, and a lover, obviously, of kung fu movies, is the fact yeah. that it's a wonderful meld of 
of, depending upon the era of film you're looking at, of right. realism. If you're doing, you know, if you're a traditionalist and you watch a movie and you go, oh my God, I know what he did. You know, he did an eagle claw with a tiger claw onto this. And, you know, it's like I get mm. that. And I actually see a cool app from that. You know, I get what right. he did there. But at the same time, you know, you, you take yourself in that martial situation and go, oh, I can see where I would have ended that much more quickly. But yeah. it's entertainment. Yet still with that, you know, the guy thing, you know, it, it yeah. gets you in the gut. Well, what I found really interesting was when I um, first, uh, when I was training in the last years really intensely in some of the more traditional uh, Hongar weapons and, 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 and styles, when I went back to look again at the Shores movies, spotting techniques from the forms <laughs> that were being used verbatim in the, uh, in, in the, in the films. So there was definitely an artistic, an art, an art to an artistic aspect to what you were seeing on screen that I think is missing from most American-made action films. Definitely, yeah. you wouldn't you wouldn't mistake five minutes of an American movie and five minutes of a Hong Kong, a good Hong Kong movie. No, never. <laughs> well, uh, so we've gotten up to this period, and then and then things sort of once again things sort of revolutionized. You know, around the the late '80s and early '90s, and Wire you started over. seeing more of the sort of what I call the art house kung fu stuff. The uh, you know well, there's, there's an interim period when you had again the reaction to you know you had an overload of kung fu comedy. Shaw Brothers were in decline, and you had the rise of other independent companies, and primarily Golden Princess. When their mainstay was comedy, and uh, the gunplay dramas of John Woo. So John oh, Woo was yeah, yeah. Uh, John the Jungjit at um, yeah at uh, Shaw Brothers. And then he moved into doing films at um, Cinema City. He, he kind of had a couple of uh, relative hits at Golden Harvest. He was originally billed as the new king of comedy, John Woo. Yeah. And he did a, his biggest hit was actually a film that was a film version of an art for Princess Chung Ping. But then he went to Golden, went to, um, to Golden Princess. He wanted to do a remake of a movie called Ying Hong Bunsek, which means uh, True Colors of a Hero. But uh, the original film in English was called Story of a Discharged Prisoner. And he wanted to remake that movie with uh, Dick Long, who'd been a big star at Shaw Brothers. Yeah. Uh, Leslie Jung, uh, oh. who was a major pop star and, yeah. and, and actor. And Zhao Yunfat. And Zhao Yunfat at that time is somebody who'd been a huge star on television, but had failed to make the transition into films. And so people were like, wow, you know, are you sure you really want to use Jai Fat? And he stuck to his guns. Now, of course, it's impossible to imagine uh, anybody but Jai Fat playing Mark Gore in Better Tomorrow. Right. But he did. And Jai Fat a huge star in it. He created that whole, what John Woo did is figured out, you know, I can never match what, uh, what, what Chang Che did or what, uh, you know, Lao Garlong is doing with Kung Fu. I'll always be at the beck and call of the action director. But if I develop a new style where I make the gun as exciting as sword used to be, then that would be something else. So he did this whole thing that there's a big fan in England called Rick Baker. He came up with the title Heroic Bloodshed. Yeah. Oh, yes. What call, which is what they call those movies. And then a little after that, it's funny, you had two guys called Chow. There was Zhao Yun-Fat and there was Stephen Chow, Chow Xing-Chi. <laughs> yeah. Nonsense talking is Mole Tao comedies. And they became hugely popular as well. Uh, so you had those two streams, and then that's in the late 80s, and then in the early 90s, really Choi Hak, who came oh, who was yeah. an Maverick Vietnamese filmmaker who'd had success with uh, different genres up to that point. I mean, his biggest hit maybe was Zoo Warriors, Suk San, yeah. which was a big fantasy epic he did at Golden Harvest. He came to uh, uh, he came back to Golden Harvest to do a Once Upon a Time in China, 
a new Wong Fei Hung film with Jet Li. And Jet Li also at that time was a failed actor. He'd done his first Shaolin Temple, his first mainland Chinese martial art movie was a big hit. But everything I he'd done after... I, and the films afterwards have their merit, but they'd all failed commercially. Right. Nothing in Matt Shaolin Temple. And even right before um, Once Upon a Time in China, they did a film called The Master, which was shot in L.A., and that was a big flop, was kind of yeah. unreasonable. <laughs> and it shows you the clout that Chuck had, that he said, he went back to Golden Harvest, he said, okay, you've just spent all this money on this movie in America I just did that's terrible. Here's what I want to do. I'm going to shoot a more expensive film with the same actor, and you're paying for it. I got to harvest <laughs> the check. That, that shows you the power that Choi had in the early 90s. Yeah. So he did one time in China, and that kind of uh, certainly transformed the industry for the first you know, half of the 90s that you had Kung Fu cinema happening. And then after that, I mean, the trends proved harder to follow in a very, you know, there was a, the, the, up to where we're talking about, it was like a film would be a hit, like, uh, you know, Big Boss right. or Illegal Shadow. Or Once Upon a Time in China, or A Better Tomorrow, and it would be transformative of the whole industry. It's hard after that to see a single film or a movie. It kind of became more disper- more diverse, mm. more like Hollywood, I guess, that you get films of all genres being made, and some work and some don't work. Um, and that's kind of where we're up to this day. And people are still doing kung fu movies, comedies, gangster movies, whatever. I mean, science fiction has never really been a major trend over here. No. And, 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 Splatter horror, but otherwise every other genre kind of represented in Asia, in Hong Kong, and the opening up of the China market, it opened up the the kind of the potential of what you could do uh, economically, but creatively it put some you know restrictions on because now you had to conform to what the Chinese censors would allow. So that's had an effect over the last few years. Yeah, it's it it seems like. Um I mean, as far as the you know the kung fu, the action stuff goes, uh, Donnie Yen is the big player there and now. He's he's sort of had a huge renaissance in his I I want to say later career, but the guy still looks like he's twenty five years old. What's his secret? <laughs> yeah. Is he bathing in the blood yeah, of virgins yeah, or yeah, what? it's fiftieth? Well, yeah. I mean, we're not going to talk about it on camera, but yeah, <laughs> no, we had we had the fiftieth birthday. His fifth, finally, he turned fifty. It used to be like a couple of years younger than me, and and and, and suddenly it was like ten years. Um, maybe that's what you get if you get like. Five million movie, but he's uh, he had his fiftieth birthday the other day, and he's he's looking amazing. What happened with Donnie? I think obviously uh, he's somebody who's been a good friend of mine for many years, and I started off in the business in Hong Kong, like fighting Donnie Yen. That'll be my that'll probably be the only thing I'm remembered for. I'll be a footnote in the Donnie Yen story. <laughs> yeah. Fought him, fought him in circus. Anyway, um, was and I said this to him, you know, when during the long era when he was not a main leading guy, when he wasn't at the anywhere near the height of stardom that he is now. Right. The thing about Donnie that I think was frustrating for the longest, he was so close and he just never quite got to the A-list of the Jackie Chans and Jet Lees. My feeling of why that was is that uh, you can become a, an actor, a leading actor even, in a number of different roles, but you can only become a movie star when you have a role that defines you. Yeah. And the things you do immediately after that are copies of it, to build the brand, or they are in react. They're, they're like in reaction to it, contrast to it, to show your range. But you've established yourself as a specific character. It's like you know Harrison Ford as a as Han Solo, and then he would do other things like Witness. There are a kind of a like, oh wow, he's not doing Harrison Ford, he's not doing Han Solo, or Blade Runner, or whatever. But it was right. like you've got a brand that you're selling. Clint Eastwood when he was like Man with No Name, or later when he was Dirty <laughs> Harry. 
Dirty Harry is kind of man with no name, but in, in America is a cop. Right. So you had that. And obviously for Jackie, it was the character that he played in the Duncan Masters Day and the Chatter movies. For Jet Li, it was once upon a time. It was Wong Fei Ho in Once Upon a Time in China. Right. For Jackie, in fact, right. it was Mark Gore. Um, for Chow Sin Chi, who failed in a lot of movies and television series before this, it was Saint of Gamblers, the Dole Saint. Yeah. You had these characters that suddenly clicked and made you a movie star. And, you know, that was what was absent from Donnie's career. Hold on, I'm going to close the windows. Oh, yeah. the train's <laughs> passing. So annoying here in Hong Kong. And so Donnie um, was waiting for Yip Man, or Yip Man was waiting for him. And I think he had to be uh, mature as an actor and as a kung fu performer. And he had, in his private life, entered into his second very successful, very happy marriage and had children again. So he was kind of like that character. Yeah. And, you know, you know Donnie's parents, his father is a scholar, his mother's a martial artist. And you look at Yip Mar, he's kind of half a scholar, half a martial artist. So he was perfect for him. And so even after he had this kind of comeback, I mean, you know, I, I brought him back to Hong Kong to be the action director on Twins Effect. Because oh, yeah. he really wasn't working at that time. And then we won Best Action Director for that. And then he got offered to do films like SPL and uh, moved on from there. And... Still, those films were well-received, but they were not the breakout that Git Man was. And it was just finally, this one movie, this one role, really made him a superstar. And, uh, and he's, you know, been there ever since. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I can't wait to see what he does next. Let, let me ask you this, this question. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon 2 and the, with, with me in, in 2014. No. <laughs> uh, sounds good. No, really? You know? No. Yeah. We're doing Crouching Tiger 2 in March. Oh, awesome. Amazing. Thanks for your vote of confidence. <laughs> that was Craig. <laughs> oh, I mean, it's been an, I, I thought it had been announced. Maybe I haven't pushed the press office enough. I'm, I'm, I'm one of the, the wheels in that mighty machine, but uh, uh, Donnie is certainly starring in the movie with Michelle Yeoh, and uh, oh, wow. it's going to be good. It's going to be great. Yeah, it's going to be more of a Godfather 2 or an Empire Strikes Back than a, you know... I'm trying to give a bad sequel. They're all bad, aren't they? And I don't name them apart from those two, you know. Yeah. Very cool. Too. Let me ask you this one question, Bay. Um, curious, based on, let's say, for example, Crouching Tiger, you know, the original, and then yeah. you have a movie like Yip Man, um, and similar, you know, in the past genres with Quanta King, you had obviously very Hungar oriented, and when you're watching it, you know you're watching Hungar Kung Fu. Uh, Yip yeah. Man, you're watching Wing Chun, even though, you know, there's a little bit of liberty sometimes. And then there, you have in a lot of other movies just generic. Chinese martial arts. Right. Um, yeah. What's your What's your take on that? Uh, based on audience, you know, how do how do people like it? How do you personally like it? You know, I know my feelings, but what's your take on that? I think. Oh, well, first of all, I think there was a very um, uh, well informed audience of people. Some of them maybe don't even practice kung fu as we might interpret that. Right. Uh, they might, be, but they, but they know what they, they're, they're skilled, they're knowledgeable enough that when they watch a movie, they know what style people are using. Mm. And that's a tiny percentage, a tiny but important core audience of the market who are looking at the movie and go, "That's Wing Chun, that's Zing Yi, that's Bagua, that's Hunga, whatever they're looking at." Right. And um, I think that uh, when you're making, when you when you make films, you kind of have that audience already. The challenge is, if you make a kung fu movie, you know that. 
guys like us are going to watch it probably no matter what. If you put out a movie that says, this yeah. is a kung fu movie, you're going to watch it, good, bad, or indifferent. Right. What your aim is as a filmmaker is to go to the mainstream. And I think the mainstream is one over. When you have a film where you succeed in making, creating characters that the audience relate to and care about, and within the structure of the story of these people, you have a style of action that's visually appealing to the, the layman, to the mainstream audience. And it can be anything. I mean, you don't know what the next trend is. I mean, Jackie had the drunken first, and of course, Tony Jaa brought in that um, kind oh, of very hard yeah. stunt. It wasn't Thai boxing. It was basically, you know, um, yeah. stunt gymnastic-based martial arts, very athletic. With lots of elbows. Parkour. Yeah. <laughs> I like the raid when they had, like, bringing in very brutal C-Lat and whatever. You don't know oh, what it is, but I, I feel that, I feel that, um, it's not that easy that you just say, okay, I'm going to... If you just edited out everything else and you just showed all the fights for 100 minutes in a movie, you'd, your audience would be, would be, would be very Bored. much limited. It would be, even, I think, even uh, for those of us who love Kung Fu, it would be hard going to yeah. watch 90 minutes, of, 100 minutes of people just fighting. Um, and I think that what, people, what, what uh, works is if you have characters that you care about and um, it's really interesting. I mean, Jackie Chan is somebody who off-screen is this enormously likable guy. And when you see him in a movie, even though there might be guys who are younger and handsomer and whatever than Jackie Chan is these days, you don't really care about them, but you care about Jackie when you watch him in a movie. Definitely. Then you get somebody like, somebody like Jet Li, who, in my experience, him, is not a particularly nice man off-camera. But when you see him on screen as Wong Fei-Hung, in his close-ups, there's a luminosity to his presence that makes you relate to this guy in the best of his movies. So it's interesting, isn't it? It can be somebody who off-camera is like that and the camera sees it. It can be somebody who off-camera is not like that and the camera sees it. Right. Um, I think Donnie did close to his house in Singapore. Used to be, no, I can imagine, you know. It's not even, even if you work with him, if you're on the set with the guy, he's just not a warm, friendly guy. He's not a, the kind of person that Jackie is. I mean, that's, by the way, that's my personal experience. Probably somebody else would write in and say, no, Jet Li's the nicest guy I've ever met. Right, it's right. Fun. Can be very he's very politically dramatic, and he, 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 I think he's, he looks at people around him and figures out this guy's important to me, this guy's not important. Depending on that, is how he relates to people. Jackie just comes into and everybody's his best buddy, you know, and yeah. he's very good that way. And what you see is what you get. Genuine. I think Donnie, Donnie definitely over the years there was an arc from the person he was in his early years in working in the cinema industry here to the person he'd become by the time he did Yip Man and you know he needed that character was going to be this family man who can kick ass and that was Donnie at that time in his life so it was like you know uh, come the hour come the man yeah nice. And a, and a lot of his recent roles not just the Yip Man thing have really pointed out what a good actor he is and he sort of has that star oh, no. quality he's, he's, he's terrific as an actor I mean he's really come into his own as an actor um, and a, a re-actor I mean yeah. I think there's when you come into the industry to want to dominate the screen um, you know in an aggressive way as a leading man and you probably as an act have to move beyond that and, and he's become very generous as an actor and I think that's an important thing um, beyond just I'm the star of this movie to share screen time with somebody and give them an opportunity and I think that uh, you know he's obviously been on that arc and that gives your career longevity because, again, you know, you get to a point when you move slightly beyond, not that he's there yet, but at a certain point, inevitably, um, 
you, you're probably going to move beyond being this um, action lead to being more of a character player. And then, you know, you need to have to work in combination with other actors or else yeah. you retire. Yeah. Though it's funny, I say that and Sylvester Stallone doesn't look like he's slowing down. So, good on him. <laughs> no, that takes a lot of steroids, though. Oh, boy. <laughs> no, it's not <laughs> a secret, dude. No, you know what? No, no, you know, know what? Yeah, nice I mean, uh, look, the, guy is jack- the guy is jacked up on HGH more than steroids, probably. Yeah. And whatever he's taking. But the dude gets in the gym and works like a bad madman every day. You don't look like that just from popping a pill. No, absolutely, so, absolutely. I, I, I mean, every time I go to the gym, I'm thinking, wow, I'm 51, you know. I could, but I'm thinking, wow, geez, you know, like Sly is like whatever he is and um, still looking fantastic. So it kind of pushes you. But, yeah, there's a this, this limit you can reach, reach with your diminishing testosterone, you know. And then if you want to look like he looks then you're taking other things as well. But I think he's got to, still got to go in the gym. The guy the guy who really, you know, physique-wise, you know, I would love to look like is, is Hugh Jackman when he does the, the, the Wolverines. I mean, I think he's got the perfect thing. He's not, he's not crazy massive, right. scary massive. Uh, and he, and, but, but, he, but he's kind of like, he's not Bruce Willis, a healthy-looking regular guy, and he's not Dwayne Johnson. He's somewhere in between. Yeah, he's, he's muscular, but he looks like he could still move fast if he had to. But if I build, you know, from film to film, so that that kind of works for him. But it's interesting the way that you know I, I always joke about this. I say people in my lifetime, it seems now, people are younger, older, and older, younger. Basically, you talk to a twenty-year-old today, or even a te- late teens person, and they're so clued in, maybe because of the internet or you know the way that the world has shrunk, that they've all traveled. And I look back on when I was that age, you know, we knew nothing. You know, right. we go around somebody's house, knock on the door, you want to come out to play. You rang up somebody, hey, you want to do this? You know, no texting, no emailing, no nothing. It was basically you lived in this little bubble. And so you talk to these 18-year-old guys who seem to be like, you know, uh, particularly 18-year-old girls because they tend to mature quicker. They seem <laughs> yeah. to be crazy. And then you get, or conversely, you look at, you know, I was... When I was 20, somebody who's 50, the age I am now, was like one foot in the grave. And we're all still hanging in there. And, you know, you, you go, you look at people, you know, whatever age, and you're going, wow, people are, you know, taking care of themselves. And, you know, it's not a case that they get past. When I was, when I was growing up in Peterborough, people would play sport in school. When they left school, they would stop. Right. There were no, there was no jogging. Right. There was nothing. And the first thing I remember as a big kind of craze was squash. I don't know if you know, yeah. do you even know what that is? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So there's this, everybody's going to play squash and get in shape. And these guys drop like flies. These middle-aged fat bism had heart attacks across the nation. <laughs> oh, yeah. You can't remember them. But it was seriously, it was like, oh, my God, what happened to Uncle Frank? He died playing squash. Yeah. <laughs> and they were all smoking and drinking like Dean Martin back then. And, you know. Yeah, like, you know. You had like World War Two. You had the flu epidemic, and then you had squash. These were the three, main, you know, well, slayers of middle-aged white guys. I got to say that one of the great things too uh, that I, I love, and this is horrible, you know, for our MMA audience. Sorry, guys, but this is definitely a uh, Chinese-geared uh, episode. But one of the things I do love about the Chinese arts is you're going to find a lot of them cats who do kind of drink and smoke like a banshee and still get out there and do some hungar or whatever your traditional art might be, you know, sometimes oh, while they're doing the form. I mean, a lot of the guys, I mean, uh, you know, converse to what I was just saying, a lot of the guys who, uh, you know, most of the guys coming up in that era were smoking like crazy, going out partying, drinking, living it up, 
still showing up on set to do amazing kung fu fight scenes. Um, and I definitely think that the, the problem with a lot of the people who drink and smoke and eat to excess is that's all they do. Right. I do right. think if, you, if you're a ballet dancer, if you're uh, an athlete, it's not the best thing, but you definitely give yourself a bit more elbow room if the fact is that you're doing this intense physicality all the time. And by the way, I'm going to drink. By the way, I'm going to smoke. The body's a bit more forgiving. But back in the day when people did live a healthy life in school because they were forced to and they left school, entered the workplace, sat at a desk for like nine to five or whatever, hit the pub. This is England, you know, eight pints of beer a night, went home to pie and chips, very quickly became, you know, set entry, heavy set, and they had a heart attack when they were 50. Right. And that's what, that, that was what was common in, you know, when I was growing up. And that's all changed to a degree now. But definitely, uh, not so much. A lot of the guys who you, definitely is less in Hong Kong anyway. China's probably it's just as bad. But there's less smoking, less drinking among the action guys than there was. Yeah. Yeah, it's you know being sedentary. I think is the biggest killer of all. So it's that's you know it's Chinese saying you know, flowing water never grows stale. <laughs> so right. you, you got to keep moving. Well, well, let, let me uh, let, let me ask you to make some predictions here, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, we, uh, we, we've had uh, Wong Fei Hong, Fong Sai Yuk, and now Ip Man. You know, who, who's, who's the next personality to get picked up, do you think, to be the next big figurehead in, in kung fu movies? I, I'm, I'm hoping for Dong Hai Chuan or something like that. I'm hoping like for that, Guru Zhang. Who, who, who do you th- honestly, though, who do, you, who do you think might be the next yeah, one? Yeah, the to, historical who, character. Who, who, who's that? You just said Dong, Dong Hai. Who is that? Dong Hai Chuan, the Bagua, uh, the guy who established Bagua. Oh, Okay. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, finally, finally enough, they're bringing back Wong Fei Hong right now. They're doing a new Wong Fei Hong film with a young, a young guy in it. The Korean the action director and Sammo Hung's in it. So you know, fingers crossed. Maybe that will, maybe that will be the, be the one. Uh, <laughs> I think they should do a a, a Choi Le Fat movie. I mean, that hasn't been covered yet. I think that might be interesting. I wrote a treatment before for a trying to put that together. I was when I formed my own company, we were just done two or three films back to back and I'm like oh, I want a traditional kung fu movie what hasn't been done so I thought Choi Lee would be interesting you know you've got three masters what were their characters yeah. and the relationship with the student so I think no one's done the great Choi Lee kung fu movie yet there's been a couple about the art but none have been good they haven't really nailed it that way I think you're, I think you're absolutely right I mean I think a movie about uh, the internal art the character of the internal arts would be uh, overdue but they come close to it with Grandmaster. I think, you know, the character Gong Er, played by Zhang Ziyi, is an amazing figure in Grandmaster. Have you seen that movie yet? I haven't I seen haven't. it yet. But she's kind of hot anyway, so I can't wait. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> it's, an amazing, it's an amazing film. I mean, it, it, I have to admit, much as I love it, it's divisive. I mean, there are people, it seems to people either love it or hate it. It's one of those films that people respond to very strongly in either direction. But uh, I thought it was a masterpiece and, uh, you know, huge, huge fan of it. Um, so I think that you know that either you're looking at a reinterpretation like Wong Fei Hong or a fresh take on a new character, and it's somebody from the internal arts, and or it could be you know Choi Le Fat, something like that. The other thing that I wanted to do um, was to do a movie using traditional Chinese kung fu, but set in the modern era. So trying know. to figure out that right, that would be kind of fun to do, um, and that would not be with a traditional character. But with um, new, new, new kind of new, fresh, young faces, and, and but traditional styles of fighting right. in the modern times. 
and I, you know, I, I said, Samo, I said, you know, we should do that. And Samo Hung would say, well, who's going to play it? And I said, well, we just have to find people probably in the West, yeah, you know, because if you're looking for um, good looking young, you know, Chinese, Chinese who can do Kung Fu, it's tough. You know, you probably act, who can act. Edison Chen. You probably have to go to America. Ed could, Ed in his day, I mean, he's blacklisted now in China, so yeah. his career's so it's ended. But I mean, in his day, I think, you know, had he trained, he could have been, he, he, he the, the, the tragedy with Ed, I mean, I did his first big movie with him, Gen Y Cops. Mm-hmm. He really broke out as an actor with a movie called Dog Bite Dog. And he was so good in that. And uh, that then the whole photo thing hit. Yeah. And he was out. But it was right at the moment that he came into his own as an actor. It was a shame. Yeah, it is. But, you know, no, you mentioned something that's... Note to self, if you take that money, many pictures, don't leave your laptop at the... Uh, <laughs> yep. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the youth of today, you know, that's their pitfall they have to deal with is their entire lives <laughs> being potentially public. Yeah, well, the funny thing about it is I don't know that anybody, young people who are still a primary audience for all, you know, pop culture, that they actually care, that, they, that, that it bothers them unduly. I mean, definitely in the Edison case, young people in Hong Kong and China were like, dude... You know, good on you. <laughs> right. uh, it was just particularly in China, this kind of very um, idiosyncratic, you know, archetypal, kind of patriarchal society of like, we, we're going to tell you what to believe and we're going to tell you what to watch. Right. And to be aware of that. Um, so that's where, that, that's where he really fell foul. But I don't think society as a whole, they were fascinated by it. But they, didn't, they didn't hate him. I mean, he didn't do anything wrong. I mean, these girls wanted to be there and they wanted to be photographed. And then the the, thing, the only thing wrong was stupidity. He let everything be released. Yeah. But he's still, he's, still, he's still doing good. So, you know, good for him. Cool. But there are young people out there, and I mean, I think that uh, uh, you really just have to say, okay, we're doing this kind of movie, and then, like, we're doing, I'm prepping a movie now called Lady Bloodsport, which is like Bloodsport with hot chicks. Ooh, and I like it. Category three? announced. No. Okay. Well, maybe, maybe off camera. But right. uh, when we Sign announced it, Suddenly, you've got people from all over the world writing in and saying, you know, like there's this amazing girl called uh, Svieta who's like from uh, Ukraine, but she's training Wushu. She's blonde, incredible shape, trains Wushu in China. And she popped up out of nowhere. And you just go, wow, she could be the next big thing. But I, I wonder, I think if you didn't actually run up the flag and say, hey, folks, we're doing Lady Bloodsport, would you find her? Because, you know, you wouldn't go to Beijing and look around for Russian, Ukrainian kung fu chicks. Well, maybe you would, but anyway, but you would like be. <laughs> the, thing, the, the, the point is, I'm making is the fact that if you actually um, make it, you know, you postulate, I'm doing this movie, and I'm going to find the people who can be in the film, then then they they, they materialize because worldwide, and because everything's connected now by the web. Yeah. Worldwide, there are people training consistently in these arts and thinking, I, my day will come and I can be, you know, in the movies, and so you just find these people and uh it'll be you know that that the, the next wave of the next wave of chinese cinema action cinema must be charismatic young performers who can do traditional chinese martial arts in some way shape and form i believe a lot of them will be returnees coming from the west yeah or westerners who've trained in kung fu because i don't see in hong kong in hong kong people aren't training with that consistency or that kind of person isn't training with consistency no. the yeah. china Millions and millions and millions of people doing kung fu, but nobody who can be a leading man, right? Not a leading action star, and um, you know, 
the only one who's really broken out is Jet Li, and Jet was kind of made famous really in the Hong Kong system, you know, yeah. uh, not not in China. And he'd kind of done one movie that was a hit in China, and everything else failed. Yeah, and you know, um, they're doing more productions now in China, so maybe they'll catch on, they'll professionalize, and it'll you know the acting will come up to I, the I, level I, of. Oh, I think they have great. I, I, I think they have great actors, and I think that they have fantastic film production, you know, facilities and the quality of film in China, the volume of film in China is really encouraging. For some reason, and they have great leading ladies, like Zhang yeah. Ziyi was mentioned, but they've yet developed leading men. And I, I'm not quite sure why they're definitely not action leads, even though they have the huge, you know, resource of, you know, Chinese martial arts men in China. None of them really become the new Jet Li, the new Jackie Chan in a real way. Uh, I'm not quite sure why that is. But I think that the industry is very mature now in China, and it's just um, they're doing well. The new, the new Wong Fei but you know what? The guy comes from Taiwan. The guy who's playing Wong Fei is from Taiwan. I'm like, wow! You can find anybody in the south of China who right. speaks can. Nope, they had to go to Taiwan to get somebody. Yeah, well, you know, the diaspora yeah. has hurt them. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but you know, again, it's a new world now, and uh, everything's connected. So hopefully, it'll all balance out in the end. Uh, but, you know, looking forward to what comes next. Uh, it's hard for either yeah. one of us to predict. But uh, uh, why don't you – and it, we're, we're running past the time we had asked you for, so yeah. I, I don't want to keep you busy all day. Um, but before we get off here, um, uh, first, uh, tell everybody, you know, uh, uh, you've mentioned some of these things go along, but tell everybody what you're doing with your production company, uh, you know, the, the new book. Give, give us all your up-and-comings. Thank you. Well, my, you know, my day job uh, – Primarily, you know, when you, there's a saying in Chinese, when you drink the water, you should remember from where it flows. Yes. So my day job, pretty much the whole time I've been in Hong Kong, has actually been a film producer, a film writer, a filmmaker in, in, in some regard. And at the same time, I've always been uh, a huge devotee of the history of Chinese cinema. So I kind of like worked to the future, creating films that we would make and then also celebrating the rich tradition of Chinese culture. So we've been talking now about the movies in the past and my knowledge of those. Um, so right now I have my own company, B&E, and we've done four or five movies in the last couple of years. And right now we're getting ready to do um, Lady Bloodsport, which is Bloodsport with hot fighting chicks. And um, I have another movie called Phantom, which is like Escape from New York meets The Raid, but with like a, a white American martial art guy who I think can be the next big star. His name is Tom Caserto from New Jersey, nice. but he's an amazing... Uh, martial arts exponent cool. um, directing a picture called Snowblade which is kind of a really it's like a Japanese style dark bloody sexy swordplay fighting chicks hey. okay, you, definitely that's your kind of movie guys I can uh, tell we're seeing a theme here <laughs> right, yeah writing 36 Chambers of Shaolin which is a uh, you know it's a kind of a um, my as I mentioned earlier which is kind of a semi-autobiographical overview of 36 key films of my own choosing from the industry. And I think it's going to be interesting because there's a lot of information in, the, in there about the movies and a lot of them are films that people would expect to be in there like Fist of Fury, Drunken Master, Once Upon a Time in China. They're not all obscure. I think it's something like Writing Kung Fu with uh, Bolo Young. So there's some some, some <laughs> yeah, well cool. stuff that only I enjoy. Blade of Fury, Sam, a really obscure oh, Samuel yeah. Hung. Oh, one of my favorites. Mine too. Have you got the DVD of that? Someone stole mine. Anyway, I knew actually. I'm still writing about it, and uh, it's funny you're talking about the pattern forming of like you know, the hot fighting chicks and whatever. Somebody was was critical of me online. They said, you know, like you know, are you always hanging out with these girls half your age? And I'm like, all the girls twice my age are dead. So <laughs> <laughs> what are you gonna, 
what are you what are you gonna do? I know. It's funny. He said that, and I thought of that line like two days later. And I was like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the French call it a pension d'escalier, thoughts of the staircase. It's like basically you're leaving the building, walking down the staircase, and you're just going, I wish I'd said that. Yeah. But that, but yeah, no, no. I mean, not not all the films are about hot fighting chicks, but uh, it is a strange be. phenomenon. It is a strange phenomenon of the industry that as you necessarily get older, the people you work with stay the same age because um, people want to watch people from 20 to 30 as leading players in movies generally, you know, maybe a little bit over than that. Uh, the girls, 20 to 30, and the guys are maybe a bit beyond. But even when you're, when you're, if you're making movies and you're 20 or 30 or 40 or 50, the actors stay the same age. So you're constantly hanging out with a bunch of 20-year-olds, you know, whether you want to or not, unless you do a film, you know, like Red or something, where it's, the whole point is it's about older people. Right. So, um, but it's good. It keeps me uh, sharp. You know, you're like Matthew playing. McConaughey in Dazed and Confused. <laughs> That's it. Uh, totally. They don't get much more dazed and confused than me, as you found out at the beginning of this phone call. I'm telling you, Monday morning in the big city. Oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. God. <laughs> well, anyway, guys, it's great talking to two kindred spirits, and uh, let's stay in touch. And let me know when this is up and about. See what people say. Absolutely, we'll do. And thank you so much for for, for getting up out of bed at, at this ungodly hour for us. Howdy, the Skype. So you know that was a big thing. The best to you, but yeah, train hard. Uh, you too. Good luck. Right. Bye bye. Bye bye. after trying to relive some kung fu movies out in the champagne lounge Ooh, thank you bae yeah if you hadn't guessed we're back uh man that was a ton of fun for me i hope your listeners enjoyed that as much as we did yeah i'm sure even some of you mma crowd loved a bruce lee or a flick or two man that that was a good time absolutely and that guy's i mean he's got his finger on the pulse of this thing and has had for many many years so um if that wasn't fairly obvious to you (laughs) re-listen and by the way there were some crosstalk issues on the skype there at the end but uh we didn't get to pester him for email addresses and all that stuff guys just go check out our show notes they're kicking ass right now and you'll find links to everything that we talked about including where to find bay and uh where to buy his books and uh we'll be hooking up some information to his production company because i know there's some heavy hitters out there and stuff that can help with some networking and all that good stuff and we'll put all that relevant information in there that's why you're the man craig hey That's why Ryan's the man now. And look, I, I, you know, I'm just going to touch back on this for a minute, man. That book, that if you love Hong Kong action cinema, mm-hmm. then Hong Kong action cinema by Bay Logan, released in 1995, I think, is the book. 
That's right. And it only takes you up through about 95 or so, but man. That'll give you. the. <laughs> I, you know, I, I got that job at, at Video Library because I walked into that store and I talked to the owner and he said, he threw that Taishan catalog down and he said, yeah, pick a few out. We want to carry that stuff, but we don't know what to order. And I had enough knowledge at that time to pick 10 or 12 good movies, you right. know, but. Yeah, Aside dude. from trial and error, when I got that book, it's like, oh, man. And, you know, that was the beautiful thing at that time was, you know, I worked there part time. I filled in a lot, but I, I had free movies for years. Dude, I remember when and that I happened. would order the movies myself. Yeah. It was amazing. I remember you came when you were going to uh, my Northern Shaolin class at the time and you came to class one time and told me when that happened. I was like, oh, my God, that's like the goldmine of opportunity right there. We all need this. Yeah. You know what, <laughs> Craig? I, I just had a thought and hi, our listeners. We'll put this up on the Facebook page or something. Mm. Um, but I found the videotape of the commercial for the video oh, library snaps. we did, the Kung Fu commercial, yeah. where uh, I come across the counter and have a Kung Fu duel with uh, one of our customers. Right. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, I got to put that up. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get that digitized somehow, and, and in the not-too-distant future, we'll put that up on the Facebook page, you just so you it. guys can enjoy that. But uh, yeah. thanks again to Bay Logan. That was a ton of oh, fun. Oh, hell yeah. Uh, talking what an to honor, him. huh? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, you know, it's one of those, it, it happens pretty frequently on this podcast, but I get to talk to people that I have a little bit of respect excitement about. Yeah. Yeah. No yeah, joke. yeah. <clears throat> I love it. Uh, so, um, we have decided, I told you at the front of the show, we were going to do all kinds of things, but news and mailbag are out folks. No, no, the mailbag's still in. Oh, that's right. Media mop up. Yeah. We're, you know, the media mop up would be superfluous after that conversation. Yeah. The whole thing was, we'll save that for next time. And, uh, also, uh, the news will hold. Yeah. Y'all get your news next time. We'll, we'll get you the news next week. Instead. But we haven't done a mailbag in a long time, so we want to go ahead and do one of those to wrap the show up. So Yeah, because we've been getting mail from you guys and keep sending them. We love them, and uh, here's showing you how. Yeah, and so, you know, this one's going back to early June, mailbag time. All right. Give it to us. This is from Gary. He says, what's up, dudes? Enjoying your podcast. Question for Craig. Oh. My understanding is that Northern Shaolin in China is traditionally considered to be a style for the young up through the mid-20s due to its reliance on flexibility, etc. And after that age, it is not considered appropriate and one would focus on the internals instead after reaching the 30s. How much truth is there to this? A question you should ask your guests. Well, well you know what? Let's stop right there, Craig, okay. and let you answer that because that was straight to you. Yeah. Uh, yes and no. Uh, two things. One, uh, flexibility is not natural. You know, for some people it is. Uh, you know, and the way that we teach uh, Northern Shaolin, we end up actually um, promoting that flexibility through the training. You know, you're, you're stretching all the time. Uh, secondly, uh, you know, I've personally encountered this myself, getting uh, students who come to me in their 30s and their 40s and sometimes in their 50s. And I, I don't just say, no, you can't do this. Sorry, crush your dreams, go away. No, in, instead, bring it up from a personal level. That's what Kung Fu is all about. And so we adjust and adopt, you know. Secondly is the aspect of the internals. Every single, well, not 
every single, but majority of Chinese arts, external arts, uh, quote unquote, will have an internal component and internal training. And so it's simply a matter of shift in mentality as well as um, focus in the training uh, for somebody who might be coming in older as opposed to, you know, training so hardcore and sitting in super low uh, horse stances and uh, high, super high kicks, taking a little bit more of a Tai Chi flow and a little bit softer mentality and flow and health aspects, uh, but still being able to go through the entire curriculum uh, with that aspect to it. So, yeah, but going back to your aspect in China, you're going to hear all kinds of epithets and, and belief systems on things, you know. Uh, for example, we just got finished interviewing Bay Logan, who's a Hungar practitioner, but uh, he's, you know, in our generation, and if not a little bit older, and yet he's still doing it and uh, loving it to bits. Um, Hungar's an art that I would have said the same thing about, uh, that it's great for the young, but when you get older, no, move to Tai Chi or something like that. Now, there's a way you can do it by shifting your focus. Yeah, two quick points I would make is, one, um, yeah, you know, if you start doing it young and you keep doing it, you'll maintain that skill set. Yeah, you will. Within reason. You're not going to be 99 years old and, you know, <laughs> doing backflips or whatever. Right. That, you know, nature eventually will intervene, but that doesn't mean that you can't still do tornado kicks in your 40s and 50s and 60s or whatever. Even you just it, might do them a little bit differently with different kind of energy flow to it. Exactly, you know? but you can maintain a lot of that. But it is some of that stuff kind of has to be picked up young and maintained. True. Um, the the other thing I would point out is that even in the curricula of Northern Shaolin. Like the basic training is extremely good for young fit people. Mm -hmm. It's very rigorous and you do these very stylized stances, you know, super deep, super linear. Right. But when you get into the classical forms, guess what? That all changes up. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you're not doing that bow stance that you practiced in class because you were doing that for a different reason at that time. You were right. building up skill when you get into the forms and it gets to be a little bit more about fighting then the bow stances start looking like the bow stances in the internal arts, you right. know, or compressed what, yeah. closer to a Santi almost, if you would. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's so there, there's something there for everyone. Yeah. I think the, here's the qualifier for me is if I were to change anything about that epithet that you heard, uh, in the Chinese phrase is the word ideal. It's ideal or most ideal for the young or the young at heart or those who get started young, um, but it still can be done. It still can be done in the older ages, um, but ideally, yeah. Yeah, it's one of those arts that would suit you better, Sure, ideally. Um, but you can still pull off some pretty great stuff when you're... You know. And if you if you look back on the internal masters or whatever, the people that were doing the Bagua and the Xing right. and the Taiji, what did they have in their early lives? Uh, rice and trouble. And well, aside from that, <laughs> <laughs> externals. Yeah. Yeah. They did all that same stuff too. And that was just one of the ways that they could adapt it to an older frame. You know, exactly. Almost all of them did. They're yeah. very, and you know, the people that started out in Taiji, you know, you tell it's Man Chang used to talk about taking Taiji classes 
and being so exhausted when he got home at night that he couldn't drag his legs up onto the bed. He'd sleep with his legs yeah. hanging off the bed. So they're doing the same Traditional thing. Traditional old school Tai Chi is not soft, slow, old people shit anyway. Right. <laughs> and, you know, and uh, the same goes for all the interns. Yeah. They're, they're, it's, I think it's a bit of a false distinction. It is. In a lot of ways. Just like Northern Southern internal external, I think it's all just kind of classification for ease, but it's not really It doesn't precise. really get you to the nut of the matter. No. Yep. Moving on. Yeah, so let me finish out this email. A uh, question you should ask your guests at the end is if they have any stories they can share with statute of limitations expired of using their arts on the streets. Well, you know, I and you you may have noticed I've started throwing this email goes back a couple of months. You may have noticed I started throwing this back in, but most guests will throw out the feet of clay yeah. or the uh, swap and paint options mm-hmm. and look for those. But you know. You can, you can only press. And for instance, tonight the interview ran long, so I wasn't going to pester him about that stuff. So, you know, it's it's out there. It's always out there. Yeah. We've got that in the podcast format. Just, uh, you know, it's not always going to get jumped on, but keep listening. We, we get stories. Definitely. And we have stories that we still haven't told. So he finishes up with, keep up the good work. Uh, would love to have a beer with you guys sometime. Likewise, Gary, let's make that happen. Yeah, come on down, bro. Yep. All right. We got another one from Nick. He says, hi, hiya. (laughs) Hi, hiya. Thanks for the podcast. I'm going through the back catalog right now. I wanted to submit a martial arts film of sorts for your consideration for the movie section. Gross Point Blank from 1997. Is that the surfing one? No. (laughs) That's Point Break. That's right. Uh, And uh, I'll just say right up front. Love this movie, and I know exactly where he's coming from, but I'll let him say it. In my opinion, the hallway fight between John Cusack and Benny Urquidez is hard to beat for a couple of reasons. It features two skilled martial artists and no stuntmen. It's choreographed in a way that holds up after time. It looks like it hurts. The characters sweat and start to look bruised. There are more misses than hits and picture-perfect strikes. It has jeopardy for the protagonist. It follows... the arc of violence and proximity that the protagonist is going through. The rest of the movie doesn't feel like it's been set up for fight scenes. Thanks again. Okay. And, and thank you, Nick. And key days. That's the jet. And, and oh, the face jet. Guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He's, he looks like he's wearing the mask from Halloween all the time. Yeah. Love Benny the jet though. And he's been in a bunch of great Hong Kong movies too. Yeah, he, he had has. one of the best fight scenes with Jackie Chan that ever got filmed. Uh, he's got some legs on him, boy. Yep. Um, but, uh, I concur completely with this and you know what? Just for you, Nick, I'm going to put that in my Netflix queue, and we will definitely talk about Gross Point Blank, because I want to watch we'll that make movie make it a media mop-up. And I yeah. think I've actually seen it. It's just not ringing a huge bell right now. Yeah, oh, I totally remember it. The scene involves a pen, and it involves fighting in the old high school hallways. Where he's, yeah, yeah. I'm going to see it. Oh, it's okay. really good. Uh, reunion. Yeah. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Radio DJ. Uh, yeah. yeah, let's not spoil anything Gotcha, else. okay. All right. Uh, next one from Scott. Hey guys, I just found the podcast last week. That's uh, August, 2013, because I was looking for a podcast on internal arts and there you crazies were. (laughs) (laughs) And he says in brackets, sorry, this ended up being long, but hopefully you'll enjoy it. So settle back. Here we go. I'm with an extremely informal, uh, familial school. So the zany style of the podcast is absolutely perfect for us. When practicing applications, the senior student always says, Go for it. If anything goes wrong, don't worry. I'll scream like a little girl. (laughs) (laughs) Just like a dib. Yeah. 
Uh, I know iTunes is a big thing, but Stitcher Radio is another great outlet that a lot of podcasts and even TV and radio shows use. It's available for Android devices, which gives it a big advantage over iTunes. Check it out. Craig, are we on Stitcher? I think we are. I'm going to have to look into that. We'll, we'll I don't think we are, actually. But that's, all right. I'll, I'll check it out. I'm not sure, but I don't think we are. We need to get on Stitcher. So all you Android people out there are having to work to get this podcast. Right. We'll, we'll take a look at that. Okay. Moving along. I've only heard a few episodes so far, but one thing I noticed is that you guys tend to shy away from the mystical, and the one guest even, ex- oh, yeah. even explained it as technology, which is true in a way. But we play with the quote-unquote wizard shit, too. If I may make an observation or two on that point. Okay, you certainly may. First, your mileage may vary, as always. In my own experience, we were taught that chi is far more of a generic term than Westerners realize. I've come to understand it to be potential energy of any kind and every form imaginable, and the idea is that you can convert it from one to the other. An eagle flying at 40 feet of altitude can exchange that 40 feet of altitude for speed by diving, convert the speed into impact by pouncing on the prey, convert the flesh of the prey into body energy by eating it, convert the body fat and air to the physical energy uh, to physical energy by breathing and metabolizing, convert effort to al- altitude by flapping wings and start the whole mess over again. But it's all chi. I'm going to pause here. I'm going to address no, I, these I, point by point know. as we see them to not have to go back and try to track the whole thing. <clears throat> Totally agree with that assessment, but right there, what you're talking about is a natural, non-mystical process. It's a fascinating, super cool process, but it's not mystical. And I think one of the problems that we have with using the term chi too often is that it becomes such a broad term that people can cram anything under it. Not just can can cram, that most do. Right. Especially in the new age. It's a very, very big umbrella. And that's that's the problem I have. I'm a a huge chi believer, user, and everything else. Uh, But when I say that, people immediately think I'm talking fireballs out my palms. Um, And unfortunately, because of a lot of the bad new age writing, that's what a lot of people mean when they say that. You know? I don't know. Right. And I think we pointed out on the show before that that chi is a, a, a big catch-all term, and it's a pre-scientific paradigm that has a lot of worth embedded in it. Right. So we're not knocking it on that level. Anyway, getting back to the email. Okay. In push hands, there's a lot of talk of listening. I'm getting better at this, but I've got a long way to go. The idea is that you touch someone and try to feel their body the same way you feel your own. I found I can feel someone else's balance with my eyes closed. I know which foot they have waited, where they're tense, etc. This is what I believe to be the shit of wizards. It's a classical thing called ting jing. It's yeah, one of the listening skills. Yeah. yeah. And it's also in science it's called proprioception. It's the awareness of where your own body is and via contact where someone else's body is. Again, I totally agree with you, but you're not talking about anything magical here. What you're talking about, if, if, you, if, if you could sense what leg someone had their weight in with your eyes closed and not touching them, that would be magic. That would be the magic chi, and that's, what, that's where I draw the line. I don't think that magic chi exists. But if you've got a hand on someone, your brain is an amazing engine, and most of what it processes goes on subconsciously. You can tell a lot about the world. Your brain 
shuts out things about the world that you don't need. This is where Dave, <laughs> this is where Dave and I differ. He and I both agree in in content, but he prefers to use those labels and terminologies from the scientific world, whereas I tend to just go back to the old Chinese because it's shorter, and I just want to shut up and, and do this stuff experientially rather than explaining it with long, cool definitions that make sense in the scientific world. I get where you're coming from. We both agree in content, just expression, right. perhaps. I mean, and where I'm coming from with it is we live in the scientific world in the sense that our modern lives rely completely on technology, but also on in the sense that you know, all science is trying to do is describe in detail the world we actually live in. So by can. doing that, I don't need to. Yeah. And, but by doing that and not just going back to chi every time, what I'm doing is setting parameters. So I'm trying to keep the chi hugger ninjas from creeping under my umbrella. If you see what I'm saying, <laughs> I'm trying to carefully delineate what I think is and isn't. I hear you. I hear you. And you I and I both yeah, know what we we're talking about. Yeah. All right, get back and to the And of course, mail. science doesn't explain everything. I understand that as well as anyone. Right. Um, and so do scientists, or they, they would quit if they thought they'd done it all. <laughs> um, uh, I knew I was getting it right when I laid a hand on my girl's thigh while she was laying in bed. Ooh. I relaxed and listened, and I told her that I thought her thigh was tense. I was right. Again, you touched her. You listened. You had developed skills for listening. And by listening, you engaged your proprioception. That's me throwing my scientific terminology in there. Better terminology would be called Kama Futra. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think uh, we can safely say Craig and I are both in favor of laying hands on your girlfriend's thighs. That's right. Um, but again, you know, it. Uh, there's nothing. I don't think it's wizard shit unless you're calling her on the phone in the middle of the night from a secret undisclosed location and saying your thigh is tense and being right. Yeah, yeah. but I, I get where this guy, cat is coming from. And I like like his terminology because it's quick and easy and explains what you mean without having to say super magic Taoist powers, if you would. Right, right. Uh, fortunately, she takes the same class, so she didn't freak out. She knew exactly what I'd done and was working on those skills herself. Hmm. Awesome. I say keep working on those skills. Yeah. Yeah. Don't take your hand off of your girlfriend's thigh if you don't have to. That's right. Let me know when you guys break up. Craig. Whoa. <laughs> Point being, you can practice the quote-unquote wizard shit while giving someone a massage. Close your eyes, try to feel their body just as you would an opponent and figure out where the person is tight. You get to practice your esoteric magic skills. See, that's the label I have a problem with. Not any of what he's doing or what he's doing with it. It's just esoteric magic skills. And when you get good at it, the other person thinks you're a miracle worker with a massage. And, oh, yes, people are easy to fool. You can make them think you're doing more than what you are. Uh, I'm sure that Todd Elihu could explain it far better than I could. Hey, sounds like this guy knows Todd. <laughs> or uh, listen to the show. Yeah. Just ask him about listening and push hands and using Dantian circles. You can not only blow someone down in one shot, you can take many gentle circles, and each one seems to knock the person down a couple of inches at a time. It honestly does work, and good cheese skills can also be used to keep your hands and feet warm while sitting in a snowy football stadium in December. <laughs> take care and keep up the hilarity, Scott. <laughs> Thanks for the email, Scott. And, yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, and again, uh, yeah. Scott and I had a couple of back and forths about this email, just to full disclosure here. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. yeah. Disclose to me, Craig. Yeah. Well, I, I just let him know. I said, uh, you know, Dave and I have uh, 
similar but different views on this topic, and I was like, just just want to let you know that that Dave's a little bit, uh, you know, promo on on uh, promoting uh, the scientific view. And uh, if you'd like, I, you know, we'll we'll read this over the air, and I'll shoot it over to Dave and stuff like that. But um, but I think he's got it. I, I, I think he he would be more akin to where I am. Like he would differ with you the same way I do in simply terminology, but content the same. Yeah, you know? and there's room enough for both of us in this discussion. Yeah, true. And I, I could do things like uh, you know. Good chi hill skills can be used to keep your hands and feet warm while st- sitting in a snowy football stadium. You can explain that as you can mysteriously generate magical heat, or you could explain that as you can regulate your body temperature with your will to some extent, which is entering the plausible realm for me. Or you could explain that as, you know, placebo effect is really powerful, and this is exactly where it operates. If you placebo convince yourself over you're not cold... That's not mind over matter. It's it mind uh, controlling matter. Your matter controlling the way you interpret can, the physical reality of this world. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we don't have the time nor the inclination to get all right, too deep into not, that yeah. right now. But look, yeah, I'm totally fine with all this, and uh, Craig is too. And you know, always know if you're a listener out there, if I get too sciencey, you've always got Craig to fall back on. <laughs> That's right. He'll smack me in the back of the head. <clears throat> All right, let's move along. That was a nice long one. Thanks for writing in. Keep it up. Yeah, absolutely. And I wanted to give that one the attention it deserved. Yeah, definitely. Okay, coming up, we got a short one from Mark R. Love the podcast. Keep them coming. I'm a second-degree Laogar Kung Fu practitioner. Hey. There's a callback in the UK, having previously studied Taekwondo to second degree. But being really hooked on the Chinese arts, I stopped Taekwondo to concentrate properly on the Lao. I think the thing that I like about the podcast is that you are heavy on the Chinese martial arts as well as the overall delivery, of course. I've learned a huge amount from the podcast, so really big thanks to both of you for that. Do you have any Bagua or Shingy books that you could recommend dealing with the history and philosophy, etc., rather than how to do books? Thanks Definitely again, not. And keep up the good work. You know, <laughs> um, I, I will just repeat a recommendation that we made earlier when we had sort of a similar question in a mailbag. Mm-hmm. Which is, uh, if you want to start digging into the politics and the different styles and all that stuff, and not so much a how to do this or that. Not just the politics, but the history and philosophical aspects. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, Yeah, all that stuff. Um, It's hard to do much better. Go back and dig out the old Bagua journals. Um, You can get the whole... Millman? Is that Millman? Miller, Miller, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think Dan Miller was the editor of that. Yeah, uh, that thing had a pretty good run, and you can you can find it online. Hopefully, we'll put a link in the show notes. I believe we will. Yeah, check there. One of the great things, and you can about get them that, all on one DVD. Yeah, and and one of the great things about those, uh, I personally went through an entire season, not season, but year of, of those things, and is that you can find an ass load of references to all those books you're looking for. You know, personally, I would say son's books. I love son's books, but there's a bunch more out there in history, you know, back in a long time ago and modern day. Uh, But they, if you go back to the journal, they talk about all those. So check out the journal. Yeah. It's the best place to get a ton of stuff under one roof on that subject. So, um, yeah. Uh, Getting close to the end here from Mark T. Sweet. Just a couple of thoughts about the show along the lines of thing you asked things you asked about last episode, and this is fairly recent. <clears throat> On the Martial Mind segment, 
it's really pretty good, and I'm going to keep on listening to it. Sweet. An option with this or similar segments would be to spin them off into separate mini-episodes distributed throughout your feed. That's an interesting idea. It is. It involves some workload that I don't know that we might have. uh, Actually, it really doesn't because uh, I can. all you, bro. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll look into that. But, you know, we've had conversations, Craig, about, you know, uh, are we watering down the brand? Are we doing a disservice to Jeff by tagging him at the very end of shows? If we just put something out kind of in the mid-cycle where we had a Martial Mind episode go out in our feed, but it stood up as Jeff's content and, you know, it wouldn't take a lot of work on my end. So we'll we'll look into that. That's actually a good suggestion. Maybe it would solve some, you know, some quandaries. <clears throat> and uh, frankly, this show's running so long, you won't get one on this episode. Yeah. So <laughs> we're, we're approaching Hard. our old yeah. two-hour mark here. So, yeah, we are. So we're not going to push it. But, uh, but Mark, that's a great suggestion. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Um, on making the show more interactive or having a live feed, this isn't something that would suit me personally. It's one of the great things about the show is I can listen to it when I'm doing other things, working around the house or in the car. As you discussed, having video of some of the things would be good if this is possible. One option for this, if you do start to video parts of the show or do a live video feed, would be to post segments on YouTube. I listened to a weekly film review show that does something similar. I think it's called The Main Audio Show. He gave us links here. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's pretty standard. You know, even if you do a live stream, usually you don't let it just go out to the ether. You catch it and oh. put up a YouTube channel and so people can go refer to that. But we're definitely, we're working on stuff like that. Yeah. We, At the very end of the show, I'm going to, I'm going to sing just a few little songs of woe about my, uh, adventures in trying to upgrade technology here at the podcast in the last It's week. always lovely to hear Dave sing. Yeah. <clears throat> But uh, it's it's coming. It's in the works. We got plenty of time to get around this stuff. But yeah, if we do do a live stream or do video content for the show, we'll definitely have a YouTube channel to, it, yeah, to make it, it referenceable. You guys, we're we're going to be doing more interactive shows and things like that via Twitter and via video and all that. We're going to make some every now and then video compilations and uh, things to show where we've talked about things, but you couldn't physically see them. Um, it's all coming. We're still fairly new, just about a year and a half into all this. It's coming. Be patient. Yep. And finally, he says, I can't remember what they were, but I'm pretty sure you mentioned you have a direct email account. Any chance you could post the address somewhere? It'd make it a little easier for old duffers like me who don't use Facebook to get in touch. It's kind of all over. However, <laughs> we do say it in the show, but you know what? I don't think uh, they have, we started putting those in, in the show notes, in the show but notes. just recently. Yeah. It's Craig or David at, or Dave rather yep. at dot com. That's pretty much it. Yeah. And, uh, and now that we've started, uh, and Ryan has started putting them in the show notes for us. You can just go and you can click directly on a link and it'll pop it up for you. And you can email us right from there. Exactly. All right, so uh, here's another one from Mark, and I'm not sure if it's the same Mark or not. Is it Mark Uh, T? Yeah. Well, there's a Mark here, and then there's a Mark T, and these are the last ones, so uh, maybe we're getting a bunch of communication from the same guy. But anyway, he sent us some links to that uh, the the Wesley Snipes narrated Kung Fu Masters thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I had seen that before, but it was fun. I saw it when it came out. Yeah, I I went back and looked at it, and it was fun to see LaRoth Rock, you know, and and, uh, Pon Ching Fu and Diane Naughton Mm -hmm. doing that. uh, There's all kinds of people in that. Yeah, so uh, we'll that's put a, a link to that. Yeah. That's a, that was a fun show uh, that 
ended very quickly, but it was yep. super cool because it was on TV and it was nothing but martial arts. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So uh, that's on YouTube, like yep. so many other things. So we'll go Sons of them. Raw was his bodyguarding thing. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, and last from Mark T, the same Mark T as the previous email. Sweet. Uh, hello there, gentlemen. Just a quick thought about episode 44, which was great, as always. When you were discussing the use of the term master in European martial arts, one of you mentioned that it fit into the apprentice journeyman master system of progression. Ah, uh, yeah. I an interesting, today. yeah. An interesting aspect of this for me is that even if you become a, if you became a master, you were still a craftsman. And usually the socially, the social inferior of people likely to employ you who would be wealthy and important individuals. This seems to me a very different way of approaching the concept of being a master than one who wields power or authority. The historical European fencing masters are unlikely to have had power over anyone other than their own apprentices and journeymen and would have been the social inferiors and employees of their students. Mastery meant a level of knowledge and skill acknowledged by your peers and nothing more. As someone who has been involved with fencing a little while now, I also like the idea of it as always craft rather than art. I'm not sure exactly why, possibly because the word craft for me emphasizes skill and performance rather than the aesthetics or appearance of the final product. If I might make so bold as to offer a suggestion, the meaning of the term martial art might make an interesting discussion topic. Like master, it's a European term, the arts of the war god Mars, but we usually apply it to styles or types of combat that originated in every part of the world other than Europe. I've only heard of English boxing referred to as a martial art in the last couple of years, and, e and even then in a slightly, well, I guess you could call it that, I suppose, kind of way. Thai boxing, on the other hand, was thought of as a martial art pretty much from day one, even though it was seen as a competitive activity like English boxing, at least in the UK where I live. Anyway, dinner is approaching, and I've gone on for more than long enough. Thanks again for the podcast, Mark. Mark, I'm sorry. i got to say one thing, bro. You're flat out wrong on, a, on one of those things. Oh. Yeah. What yeah. is it? Well, martial art is not a simply European term. The term wushu, which most people simply say, oh, that means that flippy flappy shit. Now, that's just what they do, you know, post-communist China and all this kind of stuff because it makes good money and so on and so forth, is literally military or martial, wu, shu, literally art. It is literally martial art. Kung Fu has nothing to do with martial art. Right, that's a Britishism. That <clears throat> yeah, exactly. Well, now, doesn't Wushu also mean stop fight? Uh, yeah, but that's in breaking down the characters of the uh, of Okay, the I'm just saying there's another level Wu. to it there. No, yeah. that's only for the, the character of Wu means stop spear fight, literally, but yeah. Right. Um, nah, but yeah, it literally means martial art. Shufa, you know, is, is, an, is another one. Art study. And a lot of people talk about Shufa in Chinese martial art, which means, no, not just the aesthetics, not just this. It's the aspect of, for example, if you're studying art and you're studying sketching, drawing and things like that, you look at the negative space, you look at the positive space. 
This is something people do in traditional Chinese martial arts. They look at when you punch me and I block or uh, I dodge and punch you. I look at the shape that makes, literally, and how I can use that. There's geometry involved and geometric shapes, and not in a spiritual weirdo kind of way, but it, in, it really enlightens you into interesting geometric principles of lines, points, shapes, that come out into completely new applications simply based on principle. I don't know. I'm going into it a little bit long. But, yeah, martial art literally is a Chinese phrase, too. Yeah. Well, I know. And I understand where you're coming from. There's definitely art and martial arts. But I also I like the idea of it being a craft. Oh, yeah. And this is a fuzzy I, thing. It's like, you know, like one of the things I do for a living or have done over the course of my life is I'm a house painter. Yeah. But damn good house painter, you know? I paint from the shoulder. My friends who are artists paint, paint from, from the, the wrist. wrist. But does that make me not an artist? Is their work more valuable no. than my you know, it's See, one of those. Do weird you know how I where, knew that you would say wrist? Is because I'm a martial artist. I don't paint for shit. I never have. Right. But I, I know the body and I know how to how to move so, it and stuff. Yeah. So I get where you're going with that. Right. Um so, you know, maybe there's a thing. It's it's a little bit of both. And I think what we need to do is, like, keep the art side in its perspective. But also, let's elevate the craftsmanship a little bit here and just realize that, you know, martial arts, yeah, there's a lot going on the wrist, but it's also coming from the shoulder and hip. <clears throat> so it embodies both sides of this world pretty yeah, well. But it's also, to me, like what we were just talking about in Chi. I think... It comes from a personal perspective of what you mean when you say that word. It has a personal connotation for you, right. you know. Uh, you know, even if you look up the actual definition, it'll still mean something personally to you—a slant or whatever. Um, you know, but I get where where you guys are coming from, and especially when he was talking about the fact that you know sometimes uh, in European old martial traditions, your students would be of a higher status than you would be. They were your employers. Well, that Even though sense. you were their fencing master. You'll find that same thing in ancient Chinese stuff, you know. Usually it's the poor broke back who's the kung fu teacher guy and, uh, you know, living under the stairs. And, the, and it's the young princely wealthy guy who's yeah. his student. But he's glad to get the patronage as yeah. long as he's respected. Mm -hmm. And they're glad to get the instruction as long as he doesn't want all their money. Right, you know, it's it's kind of a. But sometimes that creates a little bit of intrigue, and wonderful kung fu movies come as a result, or move, uh, books, you know. Speaking of, speaking of kung fu movies, we should talk to that Bay Logan guy sometime because he knows a lot about that stuff. I'm thinking about it. <laughs> well, folks, we're literally pinging on two hours here, and we haven't done one of these in a long time. No, but welcome to it, brother. Uh, so you know, there's some stuff we glanced across in, in this episode that we'll give uh, further treatment later on. Yes, um, indeed. But you guys have been crying out for a good kung fu movie uh, extravaganza. Boom. Boom goes, goes the, the dynamite. dynamite. <laughs> <laughs> yep. There you go. And, uh, you know, it's, we've revived the media mop-up section for sure with this one. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, so thanks again to Bay Logan for coming on the show. Oh, yeah. Trey Bow to you, brother. Yeah. And thanks, Craig, for making it over here in the nick of time. Hey, I tried. I tried. And, and you I tried. Did, you so. did. And, uh, before we leave, where should people contact us if they need to? I don't know. Okay. Well, let me do it then. All right. 
Uh, you can contact us at Dave or Craig at HighOutPodcast.com if you need one of us individually. Mailbag at HighOutPodcast.com is where you uh, send your questions and your mails, such as we read tonight. Um, news at HighOutPodcast.com if, if you've got something specifically newsworthy. If you have a burning news item, that's right. And uh, always uh, come join us, like us on our Facebook page. Yeah. And Back to the email addresses. If you are a commercial entity, you know, if you guys have a commercial reason uh, oh, yeah, to be in existence that's right hit us up at sponsor at com to get your word out there <laughs> highuppodcast.com www that's absolutely right absolutely right and uh again there's an option there if you just want to like commemorate somebody getting their black belt and have them talked about a little bit on the show or announce your event or announce your event you can do that dirt cheap Check it out. Yes, indeed. And you'll help us with all the things. And I still didn't sing my litany of how much I screwed up this week trying to improve the podcast. He's got all kinds of microphone shit coming in, and and we're working at, uh, you know, getting another year of hosting on the podcast. Aside from that, we got uh, some cool swag coming your way and lots of goodies. I'll save uh, that story for later. But, you know, uh, on the good note, we do have a remote recorder now, so we'll be recording some things remotely. And we've got the snowball. Check it out, Craig. Hey, I like it. It looks like a little Doctor Who. Never mind. It made me kill the Skype on my computer forever, so I have to use my wife's computer for this podcast from now on. But, hey, you know, that's part of the price we pay. And I'm grinding along with this ancient computer, and I have the money to buy a new one. But I'm a Mac guy, so I'm not going to buy it yet. You know why? New Mac shit coming out in like a month. Hey. killing me. Five for a nickel and ten for a dime. And all these improvements I tried to make, basically my old computer is stopping me. That's enough on that for tonight. You know what, folks? I think we had a great time tonight, and I hope you did too. And uh, tune in next week for more excitement. Until then, we'll see y'all. How could that happen? How could that happen again? Where the fuck was I looking when all these horses come in? And you build an army Ten thousand women, pilots flying, interfacing space and beyond, building army to come and find me. Yeah, you should worry about the rating of your show. That was <laughs> oh, we're explicit, so uh, you know whatever you want to do. But and nobody—they're fine, honey. Come back. <laughs> <laughs>